Another day of germ warfare and still no sign. The worst case of bioterrorism in this country is close to being solved. A complete sweep for traces of anthrax. Of smallpox epidemic. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. A dark winter. We had this event uh, 20 years ago. There was a panic for a deadly uh, bioagent. Yeah, like now, corona, corona, corona. Yes. 20 years ago, there was anthrax, anthrax, anthrax. I don't have anthrax. Good morning. President Bush tries reassuring the nation after anthrax is found at a facility that handles mail going to the White House. This was based on a bacteria called Bacillus anthracis, and it happened in September 2001. And it came out in October 2001 with uh, a bio-attack with post letters. Yes. Send it to high-level journalists and high-level parliamentaries and the first letter was given to a media outlet called Amy in Florida and this was around September 11 interestingly but this mass uh, panic what was created then by the governments and by the media was anthrax 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 like now corona 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 and well, they created a law in December 2001, and this is nearly exactly the law that happened now in Germany on the 18th of November 2020. So, and this was the Model State Emergency Powers Act with the draft of December 21, 2001. So, it looks like that the Antrix event in 2001 is like a blueprint of this uh, corona virus in 2020. And we have a lot of other similarities and code words. Interestingly, so we know from the anthrax, yeah, it was not foreign attack, it was a domestic. And this is official, even the government uh, of the United States. So, okay, this anthrax attack was not a foreign attack, it was a domestic attack. Because in December 2001, uh, there was a scientific investigation and it came out that the anthrax came out of the U.S. Army lab for 100%. And there, the government admitted this. So what happened? All the mass media panic was coming from 100% down to 0%. Most of the people didn't know and can't remember of the anthrax yet. There was something.
On day six of the smallpox epidemic, the White House confirmed that federal government officials and military personnel are being vaccinated. 300 people have died. At least 2,000 are infected with smallpox. Smallpox symptoms are being seen in 15 states, also in Canada, Mexico and England. The U.S. smallpox vaccine supply continues to shrink as officials try to stretch limited stocks to cover the entire nation. Still, no group claims responsibility for unleashing the deadly smallpox virus. But NCN has learned that Iraq may have provided the technology behind the attack to terrorist groups based in Afghanistan. There was some similarities because there was a simulation before, three months before the anthrax attacks. In June 2001, similar to the event 201 yes. yeah, in summer 2019, so just three months before the corona outbreak. The planners were nearly the same. There was uh, the CIA, so the Central Intelligence Agency, was sitting uh, at the desk. They're doing it openly, in that's the trick. Simulations. In both simulations. 2001 and two th uh, same 2019, the same people? plus the same people. So John Hopkins University, yeah, we're involved in both. Yeah, so, so we're, we're sitting at the desk, and it was the same uh, same man, Thomas Ingleby. Yes, we're sitting a dark winter simulation. And what's the dark winter? Well, dark winter was the name of the simulation in 2001, before this bio threat happened in reality. Yes, and very interestingly, is there is a man from Duck Winter, one of the planners who have the connection to the Great Reset of today. We know what's going on now, the financial Great Reset of Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab yes. The COVID-19 crisis has shown us that our old systems are not fit anymore for the 21st century. Now is the historical moment, the time, not only to fight severe virus, but to shape the system. We can build a new social contract in short, we need a great reset. We have to mobilize all constituents of our global society to work together. We must not miss this unique window of opportunity. And is there a direct connection between Dark Winter and Klaus Schwab? Yes. And his name is Mr. David Gergen. He was the planner of Dark Winter. He sat on the table with the Central Intelligence Agency, with the Johns Hopkins University, and now he's sitting at the board of the Klaus Schwab Foundation. And the Klaus Schwab Foundation, of course, is behind or has a connection to this so-called Great Reset. Yes, exactly. So Klaus Schwab wrote a book, the trick is to do it publicly, wrote a book in English called COVID-19, The Great Reset. It's translated to German, yes. Corona, uh, Der Große Umbruch. It's really the book to read, like in the 1920s and 1930s. There is a book out, and nobody should say that he didn't know about the book. And it's Klaus Schwab. And so here's this organization that has grown to this mammoth uh, uh, force and has enormous influence dedicated to improving the state of the world. What is the state of the world today as you see? We are much too much backwards oriented or crisis management oriented and do not have a time left really to, to shape our future. That's maybe where the forum is coming in. 
As we've seen various flu scares come along, uh, we haven't had a, a super good response. So the paradigmatic examples are uh, smallpox for an intentionally caused thing, that there was a simulation called Dark Winter that didn't come out very well, uh, i.e. smallpox scored one and humanity scored zero. And the code word Dark Winter, yeah, what Joe Biden announced. This is the same fellow who told you that, don't worry, we're going to end this by the summer. We're about to go into a dark winter, a dark winter. And he has no clear plan and there's no prospect. I believe that uh, President Donald Trump uh, responded to that uh, by, by using the same words. Yeah, interestingly. <laughs> I don't have think no plan. we're going to have a dark winter and at all. We're opening up our country. We've learned and studied and understand the disease. So speech writers yeah, yes. advise uh, the candidates not to echo the words of their opponent. But uh, Donald Trump did. So Joe Biden said in a, a lot of speeches, a very dark winter is coming. We're still facing a very dark winter. And Donald Trump was echoing this. But we're not entering a dark winter. I don't know if a dark winter is coming. Interesting choice of words, just following what you've just described about event 201 and dark winter in 2001. Exactly, yeah. And I checked uh, C-SPAN, this is our uh, parliament television. If you type in dark winter, you will see, oh, it's this term, dark winter, wasn't used much before. So it's really a code. And the problem is we don't have enough vaccine to go around. Meaning we don't have enough vaccine for the United States? Well, I would like to think that, but we don't have sufficient uh, stockpiles for the people in Oklahoma, Georgia, or Pennsylvania, much less for the entire United States population. Well, that certainly doesn't sound encouraging. What do you mean exactly? Angie, it means it could be a very dark winter for America. Sobering. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Kavlik. In this simulation, Dark Winter, it was all about a real deadly agent, like an anthrax. So COVID-19 is not a real deadly agent, but Dark Winter is. And Joe Biden announced Dark Winter is coming. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for just, just on that point, you know, hypothetically speaking, could you imagine a situation where a real deadly virus were, were, were to be released, perhaps by a terrorist attack or whatever, but a real deadly virus were released? What would happen then? Well, I think we all could imagine that perhaps then the mass media and the governments all around the world will put the finger on the demonstrators yeah? and the people from the peace movement to say, oh yes, we told you all the, all the mumps don't spread out the virus because it's so deadly. Well, scientifically there is no evidence for this. We would have seen this because it's just one or two weeks. The, the freedom rallies in Berlin and Germany across Europe, we would have seen it if the, if the virus was actually as deadly as this. Exactly. But, but guess the situation if this would happen, so a really deadly virus threat would come out, like a variant of SARS-CoV-2, yes. a deadly variant would come out, and then they would blame all the people. So this would be a situation like civil war, because a lot of people are, of course, afraid, yes. yeah? yeah? And they will blame, uh, blame uh, the demonstrators or... Of, uh, of spreading. Of course, so it would polarize the population, it would set one half of the population against the other half of the settlement.
Exactly, yeah. And then they could point the finger and say, well, you've seen, we told you all the time, yeah, wearing masks, social distancing, yeah, and it's you to blame for. I see. Well, this is... the answer to that, then? What's, how, could, how could people mm. counteract that? What? Yes. And I want to close with this, uh, how we can con counteract. Mm -hmm. So we, as a uh, World Freedom Alliance, we are prepared to look into these things scientifically, evidence-based. Mm -hmm like in uh, the year 2001. There was uh, a good professor from Arizona, who, his name was Paul Kahn, and he got out that this anthrax was uh, coming from the U.S. Army itself. And if there would be now a situation with a dark winter, deadly virus threat, if we would see very sick people or dead people, we need to investigate, is this agent really from where it comes from? Yes. So it is definitely not the SARS-CoV-2, what we have seen the last months. So we are prepared for the situation, so for this mm -hmm. announced dark winter. Very good, Dr. Schumann. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Thank you. We're about to go into a dark winter. A dark winter. I don't have think no plan. we're going to have a dark winter. We're still facing a very dark winter. We're entering a dark winter. My heart goes out to each of you in this dark winter of the pandemic. When he's talked about a dark winter, a dark winter. My opponent is promising a long, dark winter. We are facing a very dark winter. We're still in the middle of what will be a very, very, very dark winter. It could be a long, dark winter. Without better planning, 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history. What are the priorities for WHO in getting through this dark winter? We are in for a long, dark winter before a vaccine becomes broadly available. The courage and judgment to lead us through this long, dark winter. As we enter the dark winter of the pandemic. Uh, what we've all had to endure and what we're going to have to endure during this very dark winter to combat this virus and to save as many lives as we can. I said in March it was going to be a long, dark winter. Um, we're still in that long, dark winter. The U.S. faces the darkest winter in modern history. Britain is braced for a dark winter as new measures are deployed to stem a surge of coronavirus. And more than nine months into the pandemic, COVID-19 is spreading with a vengeance. It has now killed a reported 280,000 Americans, according to Johns Hopkins University. Record numbers of new cases and hospitalizations increase concern that a dark winter is ahead. All I can tell you is the truth. We're in a very dark winter. Things may well get worse before they get better. The UK has identified a new variant of COVID-19 through Public Health England's. It seems that the spread is now being driven by the new variant of the virus. A new variant of COVID-19 that is spreading across the globe. The United Kingdom feels like Plague Island with two new coronavirus strains the other from South Africa. Fortunately, it's going to be quite a dark winter. 2020 has shown that governments must increase investment in public health, from funding access to COVID-19 vaccines for all people, to making our systems better prepared to prevent and respond to the next inevitable pandemic. Uh, this pandemic has been very severe. It's been, it's spread around the world uh, extremely quickly and has affected every corner of this planet. But this is not necessarily the big one. These threats will continue. 
If there's one thing we need to take from this pandemic with all of the tragedy and loss, is that we need to get our act together. We need to get ready for something that may even be more severe in future. The idea of a, a bioterrorist attack is kind of the nightmare scenario because they're a pathogen with a high death rate would be picked. Now, the good news is most of the work we're going to do to be ready for pandemic two, I, I call this pandemic one, most of the work we'll do to be ready for that are also the things we need to do uh, to minimize the threat of, of bioterrorism. So we, you know, we'll have to prepare for the next one. That, you know, I'd say is, uh, will get attention this time. All right, welcome to the bio the war message in, in the anthrax. Um, this is Tyler Blair, and today we are recording finding on the people who are positive but asymptomatic, and you know, April 2021. And hopefully, I'm coming in loud and clear there. But the one thing uh, historically people need to realize that even if there is the some asymptomatic transmission and in all the history of respiratory-borne viruses of any type, even if there's a rare asymptomatic person. That my transmit that epidemic uh, is not driven being by asymptomatic carriers. Uh, simulated yeah, bioweapons attack single that it was carried out of this whole disease. Um, and then shortly after that, of course, you had the anthrax attacks that were done in 2001, late 2001, uh, early 2002. transmission being the single biggest... Sorry about that, guys. Um, I went to go ahead and try to do things a little bit different in the studio today and I realized now that I had a double track playing there so that's what I get for not having a monitor on uh, today but it's a little bit different the way I'm setting things up anyways sorry about that again I'll just repeat what I said uh, that opening clip was that uh, Dr. Schroing uh, and he's from the World Freedom Alliance we have discussed him and he's come up before on the Grand Theft World podcast as well as uh, the Dark Winter operation, uh, a simulation that was carried out. Let's go, just jump to the screen really quick if we're going to talk about these things. Uh, carried out in 2001, uh, from June 22nd to June 23rd, was the Operation Dark Winter simulation. And as you can see, that uh, David Gergen, we're going to go into that a little bit here in a moment. Let's uh, just. Welcome everybody back again to the BioSci War, and uh, today, I say I don't have my monitor on, but I do have it here, so everything sounds fine now. And uh, we're going to be covering the message in the anthrax today, so it's pretty clear what the topic is going to be today, and then uh, we opened up with that Dark Winter clip again that we've talked about before on the Grand Theft World podcast. Um, to get started, before we jump into the material today, I just want to remind everyone about how to reach some of the resources here. So if you go to tylerbloyer.com, you'll be able to scroll down and see the latest posts in which you'll get uh, today's post being the latest. If we refresh, the message in, is in the anthrax. I had someone ask, what order should I watch the BioSci War in? Um, in chronological order is the answer. So since they've been released back starting in 
February 6th of 2021. And then if you look chronologically, you can see the order to watch those in as recommended, although, you know, it's not absolutely required. Probably will make more sense. Uh, in addition to that, over on the old GooTube, I do have a playlist in that same order. So if that helps, if that's the app that you're using. Otherwise, you know, going through the website, it would just be chronologically by date. And uh, I can get those in a list of order, like with numbers, if that's helpful. But then also, if you click on the post, you'll be able to scroll down a little bit and see the actual like order that I would recommend watching these this series in. Uh, each post obviously adding an additional post to it. So also, you know, using the full show notes is recommended. I am adding quite a bit of extra material to the show notes. So that's not only this live show, not only then do you get to have it archived on various platforms to mirror just in case there is some issue with one of the places that it's hosted. But then also there's a video uh, audio version and then in the post itself, I have, you know, excerpts from the show on important things like the anthrax war, that uh, film that we saw last week uh, with friend featuring Francis Boyle, like Unit 731. So examples here that I'm showing you of excerpts from the episode, maybe like a section from a chapter is read. We'll actually put that section there so you can see it and refer to it. And then there'll be you know, again, that list that you can see and the see also section is a growing section of the important materials that we've covered so far. So uh, there's a lot of Dave Emery's links in here because I feel like he's done a, a stand up job on this topic over, you know, like 40 to 50 years of research that you can go and find from Dave there. Uh, some of the more interesting links and connections to Peter Dashak and also to the Lancet Journal and uh you know, we're talking about synthetic biology and gain of function and bioweapons and Fort Detrick lab connections, the all important Whitney Webb article, bats, gene editing and bioweapons. Uh, then the, some of the tick research that we did, as well as uh, the double edged innovations article. I'll go through today and probably add a few more in there that I can think of now that need to go in that section. And then, of course, the running show notes that have all the resources for the actual show are under the resources section. And then some of the links, if you're interested in finding out more about some of the offers that we have available. Anyway, so moving on with the BioSci War today, you can find that playlist on, on YouTube. And also uh, to announce today, just quickly as a housekeeping item, uh, the Within the Stones Media Network course, the production company that produces uh, this material, as well as a lot of other materials, uh, that has a course behind it, which is in the show notes that you can find. And I was able to record a introduction video. And that introduction video you can find here. And we're just going to, I'm just playing a little bit of that. Here, I'll just turn up the volume. From so Within the Stones Media Network. There. And thank you for signing up and joining the course today. Uh, you made a big step towards learning some of the things that it's going to take to take your content to the next level or just learn how to live stream. Some of you might have a particular thing that I mentioned that you might want to jump right to. And other than that, uh, you know, there might be a particular order that I'll recommend to go through, but it doesn't mean that you have to go to that order. The idea here is to create a vault of information 
And uh, if you're just joining so you know you can find out more uh, about that introduction, and then as the months go on, in the next few months, there's going to be a lot more material to go and find there that's re been recorded new. But there's no reason you can't start and get signed up now because there's a lot of good material to go through in there now as well. Uh, let's see, what else did I have to talk about in the show notes? So again, just going back to what we've covered so far in the BioSci War, we're discussing how it's, uh, it's not implausible, it's not a crazy conspiracy theory to ask questions surrounding the origins of the current crisis, the current pandemic, and the things that are going on with COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 virus bioweapon that causes what's known as the condition of COVID-19. That uh, story that we're given, similar to, you know, the anthrax story, there's like always this official narrative. Um, in the anthrax narrative, there's a lone, you know, deranged bioweapons research guy that it got pinned on, and, and we'll talk about that person later in the show today. And then, of course, in coronavirus, there's the, the, the wet lab, or the, sorry, the wet market, the Wuhan uh, bat. It's a zoo, zoological virus. It jumped from an animal species to human. And uh, there's no evidence, according to Peter Dejak and others that have researched this, that there's any, anything to worry about with it being created in a lab. And so we've just been discussing, as, as if I'm talking to a friend who's, you know, believing all the mainstream uh, media or basically just buying into like the whole medical experts thing with from Fauci and uh, we, we've seen how Anthony Fauci uh, is highly involved and knowing about uh, gain-of-function research on these different uh, H5N1, H1N1, uh, Ebola, SARS-like uh, corona bat viruses and uh, is, is very big into pushing for more funding and more research into this gain-of-function research. But same thing there. I mean, when it comes to warning the public about the potential dangers, they're, they're really not giving us the full story about what the potential risks are here. And so to, to, to then go immediately run out and go get a vaccine, I mean, a lot of this stuff, like we need to put the brakes on, we need to be able to go into the information a lot further into depth than uh, we're getting from what's being purveyed out there. And then we can have space to think more critically about how we're going to protect our families, how we're going to treat uh, ourselves if we become ill, how we'll move forward into the future. But if you're going to ignore all the different various military apparatus in the world or different scientific endeavors uh, for health or for medicine um, into researching viruses, into researching bacteria, into researching anthrax, into isolating and uh, manipulating these things in the lab and uh, producing variants uh, with more virulence or potential more, more danger, more risk to human beings. And a lot of the time with the, oh, well, we're researching vaccine research and um, the dual use nature of these things is obvious and should be apparent, but it's, uh, it's, it's only different by name and there's no, or it's, uh, you know, there's the only thing difference, the only difference between offensive and defensive is uh, purely academic. I mean, it's not necessarily even defensive. It doesn't, you know, if you're defensive researching bioweapons or 
vaccines against bioweapons, then there's still that escalation. Well, what if the Russians are doing it? Well, what if the Chinese are doing this? And so we better have the antidote. And we'll uncover a little bit more of that logic today and where that's led us up to this point. And two, up and to the point where, you know, I don't have all the answers. And I, I don't think anyone does out there. That's just a, a simple old, you know, content producer like myself. But uh, I do have the... Uh, I, th I think somewhat of an ability to discern through the narrative and look through the information and be able to piece things together. And so we've been doing that over the years at tylerblair.com with the Creature of Control podcast with the various series that we've worked on. But I think that if someone says that they've got it all figured out, that that's also an issue. So we also have um, been talking about in the beginning of these episodes and then kind of uncovering so much research that it makes this uh, narrative a little bit ridiculous, which is the narrative of, well, there's nothing going on, man. I mean, the government is just always lying to us, and it's like a, a false flag thing, and there's no, it's like, did you notice that there's no flu numbers this year, bro? Did you see how, like, there's no flu this year? It just suddenly disappeared, and everything's, and, like, that narrative, we get that, too. Like, I understand. They're counting comorbidities. They're counting things that shouldn't be counted, and, uh, claiming uh, the PCR test itself, I mean, is even uh, highly unreliable and suspect in the ways that it was used and the way that they use that to count the numbers. However, that doesn't mean that there's absolutely nothing to worry about, nothing to see here, nothing going on. And we should just throw it out, man, and go back to uh, pointing fingers at all the dumb status to sleep people and making fun of the vaxxers, bro. And you know, this, this is also an issue. So it's not just an issue that we're being fed a bunch of lies and we need to go through and discern that and realize that there's worldviews at battle here. There's a social Darwinistic worldview coming into play. There's eugenics. There's a worldview of people that want to control uh, the situation and the outcome 100% and completely um, are hyper obsessed about uh, genes and uh, cleanliness, and, you know, basically uh, neo-Nazism, but not in the way of like uh, American History X, you know, neo-Nazism, but more worldwide uh, national socialism, uh, where we'll hear Klaus later talking about when he was a boy in Germany, how the economic way was something that could be inherited across the world, and it's more valuable to have a computer that you don't own that the government can control versus having to worry about all the maintenance and the economic policy. And uh, me and my buddy, uh, David Geerly over here at the World Economic Forum, uh, David Gergen, excuse me, David Gergen, uh, you know, uh, I forget where, where I even went into the whole class thing just now, but uh, yeah, so, you know, we will be traversing down more into uh, uncovering why you shouldn't have such a naive worldview about, um, you know, conspiracy always just being the government's lying to you and there's nothing going on. Um, I think it's also, you know, just as ignorant to be ignoring all the information that we've been talking about here in the last 10 episodes. Today's the 10th episode of the BioSci War. It's just as ridiculous as how we're fed the narrative, like, you know, uh, of this really dumbed down history of bioweapons. Uh, there's a little bit of mustard gas, you know, you hear about that. And then after that, you know, just uh, it was so horrible, the war that we just stopped, 
you know, I mean, you really don't kind of get the continuous narrative of how, no, they've been, you know, dual use, they've been gaining functioning, they've been uh, amping up and ramping up the bioweapons war, and that's why we're doing the bio-psy war, and we'll continue to do so. So yeah, part 10, you know, probably about a uh, quarter of the way into the series overall. No, <laughs> I don't know how many episodes will go, but this is going to be something that we shift gears a little bit here going into the summer of uh, 2021. Uh, there's other things that I have on my content calendar to get produced, but the bio-psy war is something we're going to keep circling back to, and maybe the dark winter is really the one that's coming in 2021 after everyone's had their vaccines. They're nice and immunosuppressed. There's variants. There's new bioweapons. There's mutations. And uh, all the immunosuppressed uh, people with their gene therapy medications uh, from Moderna or Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson are then, you know, part of an experiment that we really don't know what is going to happen, you know, this this coming winter in 2021. But I'm not, you know, saying that it's going to be doom and gloom. Uh, maybe we're all in for a great uh, new uh, decade of uh, these new medical apparatus from uh, people like DARPA and IG Farben and Bayer that love you love you so much that they're going to protect us and help us grow and prosper into the future. That's the faith that we should have, right? Moving forward today into the show, uh, just to make sure that I got the housekeeping items out of the way, let's go ahead and hop over to a little bit more information on David Gergen. Now, as you heard there in the opening clip, this character is associated with Bilderberg. And you can see here in the Wikispooks article, uh, he's associated in 92 and 95. And then also, as you saw them discussing, he was the national security advisor at the time uh, in charge and over the Operation Dark Winter. And there are interesting connections to him also into the World Economic Forum. Uh, this particular link that I have with the World Economic Forum came from here. Uh, so David Gergen is also associated with Klaus. We'll hear more about him later. Uh, Foundation Bird, David Gergen, director. Um, now at the old the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship. So he's he's associated with Klaus. He's associated with the Great Reset. He was associated. Maybe that's why this. Maybe that's why Biden was told to start talking about Dark Winter, right? Maybe that's why that narrative came back out because he's involved. He's behind the scenes. This guy getting ready for the Great Reset. You know, knowing that there's going to be this calamity uh, upcoming. And uh, so, you know, leaks his old ties back into the current narrative of Dark Winter. What, why were they talking about Dark Winter? Dark Winter, Operation Dark Winter being uh, an exercise on the 22nd and 23rd of June 2001, where senior former officials would respond to a bioterrorist incident uh, a na or a national security crisis where terrorists started a smallpox outbreak in the U.S., the simulation eerily predicted the 2001 anthrax attacks that happened just three months later, and also the initial government narrative of those attacks. It also reinforced the narrative such that an imminent threat from international supervillain bin Laden 
that Saddam Hussein's Iraqs had WMDs and the two had joined forces. So that's pretty interesting, right? That the Operation Dark Winter and then some of the narrative that came out after that was very similar to what the narrative was actually fed from the anthrax attacks and also from the 9-11 December 2000, uh, sorry, September 11th, 2001 uh, attacks. Now, a little bit more from the Info Galactic because you get a different angle from these. Uh, Tara O'Toole and Thomas Inglesby of John Hopkins Centers for Civilian Biodefense Strategies and Center for Strategic and International Studies and Randy Larson and Mark Demir of Analytical Services were principal designers, authors, and controllers of the Dark Winter Project. So also tying in uh, John Hopkins, which is also associated with the um, event 201 and event 201 of course being the parallel so if you would like to link those events together um, as, as you know these things that happen in history that happened before a very similar event happens in the real world so of course event 201 um, you can go and see down at the bottom John Hopkins World Economic Forum and of course good old Gil and Belinda over there at the Gil and Belinda Bates foundation and that so i mean it's basically tied in with this too so that guy david gergen has very interesting history and uh a nice uh classic way of speaking as well i will we'll hear from him later and as he sits down with our good old buddy klaus at harvard university uh so we'll get some more details about that character later but there are some interesting tie-ins there now, I find myself that assuming things is not the best way to roll all the time. And uh, one of the ways that we assume things is kind of we just hear about anthrax. We kind of know. We think we know. We, you know, might not exactly know. So for those of us who need a little refresher, I'm just going to spend a little time reading a few articles that come up, you know, when you're searching about anthrax. And so I'm not like behind these publishers as being 100% accurate or something like that but rather just going through and giving a little narrative on uh, anthrax. So that's uh, sort of the main thread that we're weaving today. We're discussing the anthrax uh, development and the 2001 anthrax attacks as well as continual. Uh, there's uh, links to Bayer. There's links to uh, vac vaccines, anthrax vaccines. So we're just going to dig into this. This article coming from uh, bacillusanthraxis.org. And that is actually the more medical term or whatever, the scientific term for anthrax. What is uh, Bacillus anthracis? Anthraxis, or is it anthracis? Hmm. Taxonomy, morphology, and culture. B. Anthracis belongs to a gender of aerobic, immobile, gram-positive, and to encapsulated spores. They have very high environmental resistance and the spores are still infectious after years and decades. The growth achieved on simple nutrient media without hemolysis and blood sugar. The causative agent of anthrax is a common worldwide in Europe infectious in humans and very rare. In, German, in Germany, there were in years of 1996 to 2008 no message this article, I mean, has some like grammatical problems. 
and the disease was last here in 1975. A man who was on the consumption of meat, I think this is translated, maybe. That's why it's having a problem. Occur in, uh, it occurs in animals, especially herbivores, such as cattle, sheep, and in Europe. And Erdosporin record. <laughs> yeah, I think this was like a translated article. Sorry about that. The transmission is from animals or contaminated animal material, organ skin. Okay, so let's scroll down a little bit in this. Uh, there's prevention and treatment. And uh, we're going to skip to the next article I had up on this. Luckily, I had another article to give us a little bit more information about anthrax because that one, uh, upon further review, was quite poorly written. So this is December 4th, 2014, anthrax, bacillus anthraxis. There's nothing quite like mail order disease to propel a pathogen into notoriety. In 2001, several envelopes containing spores of the bacteria bacillus anthraxis were shipped across the United States, infecting those exposed to anthrax or with anthrax. This was hardly the first time B. anthraxis cropped up as a prominent pathogen or agent of biological warfare. The bacterium has a sordid history as a major player in biological warfare in the past century, along with biblical historic along with a biblical history of outbreaks. Meet the microbe. Anthrax is caused by the bacteria Bacillus anthraxis, which whose names derive from the Greek word for coal, anthracis, due to the black dead tissue that develops in the site of the infection. The bacterium reproduces rapidly within host cells as it's as an obligate pathogen and cannot survive outside of its host. When exposed to adverse conditions, B. anthraxis forms a spore. These spores cannot exist or sorry, can exist for decades in the absence of any nutrients and similarly stressful conditions. After an animal dies of anthrax infection, anthrax spores will persist in the dirt where the body decomposed upwards of 70 years. When these spores are ingested by a grazing animal or get caught in the flesh of, passing, of a passing creature, they will germinate the bacteria and will begin reproducing their new host. So a little bit there on anthrax. Uh, anthrax spores are found in soil samples from every continent except Antarctica. As most animals are susceptible to the, to the disease, anthrax is best known as a worldwide disease of wildlife and livestock. Animal infections tend to occur. I mean, is that how it's best known to you? <laughs> to me, it's best known for the people who uh, stockpiled it and then sent it out and, you know, made a lot of it uh, to the for Dietrich or uh, Dugway. That's what I think of when I think of anthrax. But OK. It is something that does naturally occur in nature. I'm not saying it's not. It's a bacteria. It's not a virus, by the way. It's a bacteria. Uh, reading on here about a little bit more about anthrax. Uh, there's a gastrointestinal anthrax. Uh, there's different forms of it, obviously. So if spores are inhaled, inhaled anthrax may de develop. The lethal load for humans is approximately 10,000 to 20,000 spores. These spores are transported into the lungs where they may enter the lymphatic system and are transported to the lymph nodes. The bacteria spread and multiply in both blood and lymph, 
causing severe sepsis. In industrial exposure cases with a lower spore load and causes of bioterrorism, the, initial infec the infection initially presents with flu-like symptoms including fever, fatigue, cough, and muscle pain. The ac acute illness presents 48 hours later with shortness of breath, high-pitched breathing, skin discoloration due to lack of oxygen, rapid breathing and heart rate, and a buildup of fluid around the lungs. These symptoms worsen, leading to a disorientation, coma, and death. Half of patients develop meningitis. The mortality rate of this type of anthrax was to believe to be higher than 95%, but the antibiotic, antibiotic treatment and medical support increased the chance of survival in the 11 cases of anthrax inhalation. In the U.S., the mortality rate was 45%. So there's anthrax meningitis. Uh, there's a brief history. And then we have the section on biological warfare uh, regarding anthrax. Anthrax is one of the most popular and potential devastating agents of biological warfare. The World Health Organization estimates that a release of 50 kilograms worth of dried anthrax spores via aerosolization over two hours in a city of 500,000 would result in 95,000 deaths and 125,000 further citizens incapacitated. This strain on medical resources would rap rapidly result in a breakdown of resources and infrastructure. Such an attack would be odorless, invisible, and not too unfeasible. The Department of Defense reports that three defense employees with minor technical skills and no expert knowledge of bioweapons manufactured and simulant uh, of B. anthraxis in a less than a month for only a million dollars. Unsurprisingly, this bacterium is considered a select agent and is a hot topic in the biodefense research. The potential of anthrax as a weapon was first realized in World War I. Germany and German sympathizers in, US weaponiz uh, sorry, in the U.S. weaponized it for use against animals, including attacks on U.S. livestock. In 1916, Scandinavian rebels were supplied anthrax by Germans who used it against uh, Imperial Russian Army in Finland. By the time World War II rolled around, anthrax was being investigated and utilized against humans. In 1930, Japan unit, units uh, 731, we read, and this is Tyler speaking, in uh, last episode and several episodes of the BioSci where we've talked about Japan's unit 731 and their use of plague, uh, the Black Death, as well as studying things like anthrax. So it says, in the 1930s, Japan Unit 731 in Manchuria began testing anthrax and other biological agents on prisoners of war, resulting in over 10,000 deaths. This branch of the Japanese Kutang Army also infected Chinese cities with B. anthraxis along with uh, Black Plague, uh, Yersinia pestis. The former Soviet Union had a large production program for anthrax under its offensive bioweapons program that lasted for decades. The British and the U.S. also both had offensive biological warfare programs in the United States. Anthrax bombs were first produced in 1942. I will also just throw in here, if they're not going to bring it up, that Project Coast uh, also studied many forms of uh, anthrax, and that was the 1980s top secret chemical and biological weapons program instituted by apartheid-era government in South Africa. Project's Coast was a successor to the limited post-war CBW program that mainly produced lethal agents CX powder and mustard gas, as well as non-lethal tear gas for control purposes. 
and uh, there's also ties to Projects Coast and Anthrax. Um, a list of purchases at RRL and other documents include references to such things like snake biological agents such as anthrax and a whole slew of other things. So Project Coast is also um, involved with anthrax research of many variants of anthrax and we'll, t we'll hear more about that later. That's the South African biological weapons uh, program and we'll, we'll hear more about that. So the British in the U.S. also had offensive and biological warfare programs in the United States. This is going back to this article. It's a general article on biogeekery.wordpress.com on anthrax and the history of, of anthrax. And we're reading a section on biological warfare at the moment. In England, anthrax received special attention in 1942 to 1943, during which the English tested anthrax bombs on the island of Grenard. It took over 40 years and 280 tons of formaldehyde to decontaminate the island to the point where the travel restrictions could be lifted in 1989. The British plans also included Operation Vegetarian, for which they produced over 5 million anthrax-infected cattle cakes to drop in Germany in an effort to disseminate their meat stocks and anyone who ate the infected cows. Luckily, the war was won before the Brits could turn Germany into a vegetarian nation. Despite pressure to dismantle offensive biological, and I have some information about that in a book that we'll be reading from here later called The Higher Form of Killing, where they also talk about the British uh, development of those biological weapons after they had been ravaged by the mustard gas of uh, Germany. Despite pressure to dismantle offensive biological warfare programs, research continues decades after the war. In the 1960s, the U.S. military experimented with aerosol dispersion over the Pacific Ocean and determined that 32-mile-long line of released anthrax would travel over 60 miles before it lost infectiousness. And there's a, a reference for that. But spraying doesn't exist, guys. An aerosolized spraying isn't a thing. That's all, bolt. That's all made up. There's no such thing as chemtrails, even though in the 60s, the U.S. military was experimenting spraying anthrax, and uh, they did Agent Orange, Monsanto's Agent Orange in the Vietnam. And, uh, you know, but there's no such thing as, as aerosolized spraying out of airplanes. That's all myth and conspiracy theory. Following these tests, international pressure rose to dismantle such offensive programs, and in 1969, President Nixon signed an executive an executive order stopping all production of biological weapons in the United States. Unfortunately, this was hardly the end of weaponized anthrax. In 1979, the largest outbreaks of inhalation anthrax occurred in the former Soviet Union, a military facility on Shverdolsvik that was conducting research accidentally released anthrax spores leading to 66 to 106 casualties. Just over a decade later in 1993, Iraq acknowledged producing and weaponizing anthrax in the UN Special Commission and Umun Shinryo, a Japanese cult infamous for sarin gas attacks, disposed aerosols of anthrax throughout Tokyo. Luckily, the strain they used was not particularly infectious to humans. In 2001, letters containing anthrax spores were mailed to the media offices and senators in the United States causing five deaths and 17 further infections. Today, over 17 countries are still believed to have active offensive programs of biological warfare. And then there's a lot of references. You can 
definitely uh, find that in the show notes. So there's a little bit more, a quick overview on the uh, anthrax. Of course, there's, there's probably a lot more to dig into there. And uh, it does link into our bio psi war and bioweapons research that we're doing and the psi war aspect of it as well. If you remember Colin Powell uh, holding up in front of uh, Dick Cheney there or in front of the, the Senate or wherever, wherever he was speaking there, that vial of anthrax. Oh, well, I have the I have the vial right here, Senator. Or whatever it was, you know, we'll have, we could pull that clip up at some point in the bio side where we'll have to mix that in because it's part of the overall propaganda um, using biological agents as a form of fear to get people to more actively be involved in supporting in invading Iraq in 2003. So uh, that being said, um, we have the timeline up here that I can go through about American anthrax outbreaks of 2001. And this is from the UCLA, the Department of Epidemiology, uh, Fielding School of Public Health. Let's do the zoom in thing now. Let's see. The site's not going to play that well with us, so let's just move it over like that. There we go. All right, so we're going to read a little bit of this article to get more understanding. So, so far today in the BioSci War, we're just going through and learning more about anthrax because we don't want to assume that we already know what that is or it, how it works or uh, that because we've been told by, uh, you know, history what happened in 2001 and how everything links in that we should just uh, leave it there and not look into it anymore. No, we're going we're gonna to dig into that. Because it does tie into the modern, um, as we've already tied it in, like we already tied in COVID-19 and the Great Reset and all this stuff into the anthrax attacks and a dark winter. And um, not that I'm saying that it's all causal, that like all oh, the anthrax attacks lead to this. Like it could have been, could have been a lone bioweapons uh, nut from Fort Detrick that released the anthrax that had piled it up. It also could have been imported from Porton Down. Uh, as we heard from the first uh, mention of this in the Anthrax War there, uh, from the Anthrax War documentary, talking about the only labs, there's only a few handful of labs that could have created anthrax at that uh, refined level, at that, those, uh, I don't know, the microns or however they're measuring it. The tiny, small amount of manufacturing showed that there was only certain tools that could create that. And, uh, you know, there are only certain labs. Is it... Project Coast is it is it some of the information that came from Project Coast that was developed uh, some of the anthrax strains there uh, it was the Ames uh, anthrax strain right so there's according to like the U S uh, official story is that it was definitely domestic um, but that could be you know could come from anywhere it could have come from Israel it could have come from <laughs> various places around the world where we could easily lose track of the actual source and then blame the terrorists, blame Saddam Hussein, blame Germany, right? Where have we seen these things carried out before? So anyway, let's just uh, jump down to the actual timeline. There's a number of information here about anthrax and uh, talking about 
the history of the event, but we're just going to jump into the timeline here. So CDC informed the public in many ways, occasionally via interviews with reports, other times in talks of professional presentations, but most often with updates in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, MMWR. The first such report was issued in October 12th of 2001, following the finding of October 4th in a case of anthrax in Florida. And I'm just kind of curious what that is linking to. And this is a CDC article uh, talking about that October 2001 event. A second update was published on October 19th, 2001, stressing that the early ca cases were due to an intentional release of B. anthraxis, different from the conventional outbreak. And then again to the next line, CDC's third update came on October 26, 2001, with both case data and educational information on the management of anthrax exposure. The fourth update arrived on November 2nd, 2001. It included a graph of likely onset times in the 21 cases, 16 confirmed and five suspected that were identified at the time, linking most of them to the three anthrax laden letters sent earlier. A week later on November 9th, 2001, a fifth update was published with information about 22 cases, the size of the outbreak at the time, and the adverse events that occurred following mass treatment to prevent symptoms of anthrax. A sixth update appeared on November 16, 2001, with guidance on who should receive prevention treatment from anthrax, and November 16th reported also cited efforts that were being made by CDC to assist foreign countries concerned that anthrax and terrorist activities. A seventh update issued on November 30th, 2001 on the 23rd anthrax case arising under mysterious circumstances in Connecticut. An eighth update also appeared in November 30th, 2001, but focused on adverse events that followed mass treatment of postal workers who were potentially exposed to anthrax. A previously suspect case was removed by the CDC in a ninth update, December 7th, 2001, reducing the outbreak to 22 probable cases. Test results for anthrax contaminated the Brentwood Mail Processing and Distribution Center in the District of Columbia was presented by the CDC in a 10th update, December 21st, 2001. These findings helped explain why four local postal workers developed inhalation anthrax. In an, an 11th update also appeared December 21st, 2001, providing additional information on therapy and vaccinations for persons exposed to anthrax spores. Many months later, for the 12th update on, uh, on April 5th of 2002, descriptions uh, described a laboratory worker in Texas who developed cutaneous anthrax when handling a vial with spores from an the anthrax outbreak. So I guess that was an accident. On June 7th, 2002, the 13th update presented the follow-up examination of the Texas laboratory worker who officially was designated by CDC as a confirmed case of cutaneous anthrax to provide medical protection for workers responsible for making B. anthraxis contaminated buildings safe for others entered to occupy. The CDC published the 14th update on September 6th of 2002, following up on the use U.S. Postal Workers District of Columbia anthrax uh, that were exposed to anthrax. The CDC published an update in October 3rd of 2003. And those updates, they've all linked there. And you can go, you know, find more out uh, more about those. Not that we're going to read all of, all of them into the record today, but they are 
resource there. So during the months that followed the outbreak, the CDC continued its investigation using new techniques for handling and measuring the anthrax agent. On October 2002, issued an emergency infectious disease, volume 8 and number 10, was devoted to bioterrorism-related anthrax, summarized the work of the CDC. So that is interesting. Um, if you search the word terror in here, that in one of the earlier releases in November 16th of 2001, the guidance on who should receive prevention and so forth and so on. But then it says uh, the CDC to assist foreign countries concerned with anthrax and terrorist activities. So the November 16th report also cited efforts that were being made by the CDC to assist foreign countries concerned with anthrax and terrorist activities. So are they immediately linking it into terrorism uh, that's not domestic and it, it couldn't have been anything else but that? Or we'd, have, we'd want to read more about that, right? So uh, investigating the bioterrorism related anthrax event of 2001, this report updates the investigation of bioterrorism related anthrax and provision of antimicrobial prolaxis to exposed persons and highlighted CDC assistance to the countries investigated of cases of bioterrorism-related anthrax. So that would be interesting to connect in this article and see where it leads. Is the word Iraq come up? <laughs> uh, mass. Mass destruction, no. All right, so... I think we've done a pretty good job of at least refreshing, getting us back used to the idea of uh, anthrax and anthrax attacks and some of the more uh, preliminary work and research that we need to understand here. So on another article that I want to jump into here, it's called Anthrax Missing from Army Lab. And this is from ctnow.com. CTNow is the Hartford Current and uh, current.com ctnow. Uh, is, and this is from archive.org. So January 20th, 2002, by Jack Dolan and Dave Altamari. Let's see if I can spin a little. Lab specimens of anthrax spores, Ebola viruses, and other pathogens disappeared from the Army's Biological Warfare Research Facility in early 1990s. During a turbulent period of labor complaints and recriminations... Among uh, revival scientists there, documents from an internal army inquiry show. The 1992 inquiry also found evidence that someone was secretly entering a lab late at night and conducting unauthorized research involving anthrax. A numerical counter on a piece of lab equipment had been rolled back to hide work done by the mystery researcher who left the misspelled label, quote, anthrax, anthrax, unquote, in the machine's electronic memory, according to the documents obtained by the current. Experts disagree on whether the lost specimens pose a danger. An army spokesperson said that they do not because they would have been effectively killed by chemicals in preparation for microscopic study. A prominent molecular biologist said, however, that resilient anthrax spores could possibly be retrieved from a treated specimen. In addition, a scientist who once worked at the army facility said that because of poor inventory controls, it is possible some of the specimens disappeared while still viable before being treated. Not in dispute 
It is what the incidents say about disorganization and lack of security in some quarters of the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Disease, known as USA MRIID, at Fort Detrick, Maryland, in, 19, in the 1990s. Fort Detrick was believed to be the original source of the Ames strain of anthrax used in the mail attacks last fall, and investigators have questioned people there and a handful of other government labs and contractors. So, uh, you know, it's pretty well known, I guess, that the Ames strain was used in the anthrax attacks, and uh, this article here is claiming that Fort Detrick, Maryland, was the original source of the Ames strain of anthrax, uh, it also could have been Project Coast, I suppose. Uh, that would be a, an interesting search to put together in the in one of the web browsers. Fort Detrick is believed to be reading again, just for emphasis. Fort Detrick is believed to be the original source of the Ames strain of anthrax used in the mail's attacks last fall, and investigators have questioned people there at and a handful of government labs and contractors. It is unclear whether the Ames strain was among the strains of anthrax in the 27 sets of specimens reported missing at the Fort Detrick after an inventory in 1992. The Army spokesperson Carrie Van Der Linden said that at least some of the lost anthrax was not Ames, but a former lab technician who worked with some of the anthrax that was later reported missing said all he ever handled was the Ames strain. Now again, this is from January 20th of 2002. So right in the middle of all those CDC updates that we were reading about earlier. It is unclear whether Ames was among the strains of anthrax. Okay, sorry, we read that already. Meanwhile, one of the 27 sets of the specimens had been found and is still in the lab. An army spokesperson said that it may it may have been in use when the inventory was taken. The fate of the rest, some containing samples no larger than a pencil point, remains unclear. In addition to anthrax and Ebola, the specimens included the hantavirus, the simian AIDS virus, and two that were labeled unknown, an army euphemism for classified research whose subject was secret. A former commander of the lab said in an interview he did not believe any of the missing specimens were ever found. Van Der Linden said last week that in addition to one of the complete specimen sets, some samples from several others were later located, but she could not provide a fuller account because of incomplete records regarding the disposal of specimens. Quote, in January of 2002, it's hard to say how many of those were missing in February of 1991, unquote, said Van der Linden, adding that it is likely some were simply thrown out with the trash. Discoveries of lost specimens and unauthorized research coincided with Army inquiry into allegations of, quote, improper conduct, unquote. The Fort Detrick Experimental Pathology Branch in 1992 the inquiry did not substantiate the specific charges of mismanagement by a handful of officers, but a review of hundreds of pages of interview transcripts, signed statements, and internal memos related to the inquiry portrayed a climate charged with bitter personal rivalries over credit for research, as well as allegations of sexual and ethnic harassment. The recriminations and unhappiness ultimately became a factor in the departure of at least five frustrated Fort Detrick scientists. 
in interviews with the court, the the current last month. That's the newspaper that we're reading from now. The publisher, two of the former scientists said that a recently, uh, sorry, as recently as 1997, when they left controls at Fort Detrick, were so, when they left controls at Fort Detrick were so lax, it wouldn't have been hard for someone with security clearance for its handful of labs to smuggle out biological specimens, the lost samples, a section here in the article. The 27 specimens were reported missing in February of 1992 after a new officer, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Langford, took command of what was viewed by Fort Detrick Brass as a dysfunctional pathology lab. Langford, who lo no longer works at Fort Detrick, said he ordered an inventory after he recognized there was, quote, little or no organization, unquote, and, quote, little or no accountability, unquote, in the lab. Quote, I knew we had to basically tighten up what I thought was a very laxed and unorganized system, unquote, he said in, in, in an interview last week. A factor in Langford's discussion decision to order an inventory was his suspicion never proven that someone in the lab had been tampering with records of specimens to conceal unauthorized research. As he explained later to army investigators, he asked a lab technician, Charles Brown, to quote, make a list of everything that was missing, unquote. Quote, it turned out that there was quite a bit of stuff that was unaccounted for, which only verifies that there needs to be some kind of accountability down there, unquote, Langford told investigators according to a transcript of his April 1992 interview. Brown, whose inventory was limited to specimens logged into the lab during the 1991 calendar year, detailed his findings in a two-page memo to Langford, in which he lamented the loss of the items, quote, due to their... In immediate and f future value to the pathology division and USAMRIID, unquote. Many of the specimens were tiny samples of tissue taken from the dead bodies of lab animals infected with deadly diseases during vaccine research. Standard procedure for the pathology lab would be to soak the samples in formaldehyde, like fixative, and embed them in hard resin or paraffin in preparation for study under an electronic micro electron microscope. Some samples, particularly viruses, are also ir ir irradiated with gamma rays before they are handled by the pathology lab. Whether all of the samples lost went through this treatment process is unclear. Vanden Linder said the samples had to have been rendered inert if they were being worked on in the pathology lab. But Dr. Ayed Assad, a former Fort Detrick scientist who had extensive dealing with the lab, said that because some of the samples were received at the lab still, while still alive with the expectation that they would be treated before being worked on, it is possible that some became missing before treatment. A phony, quote, log slip, unquote, could then have been entered into the lab computer, making it appear they had been processed and logged. In fact, Army investigators appear to have wondered if some of the anthrax specimens reported missing ever had really been logged in. When an investigator produced a log slip and asked Langford if, quote, these exist or are they just made up on data entry form, unquote, Langford replied that he didn't know. Assuming a specimen was chemically treated and embedded with microscopic study, Vanden Linder and several scientists interviewed said it would be impossible to recover a viable pathogen from them. Brown, who 
did the inventory for Langford and has since left Fort Detrick said in an interview that the specimens he worked on in the lab were, quote, were completely inert. Quote, you could spread them on a sandwich, unquote, he said. But Dr. Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, a molecular biologist at the State University of New York who is investigating the recent anthrax attacks for the Federation of American Scientists, said that she would not rule out the possibility that anthrax in a spore from a could survive the chemical fixative process. Quote, you'd, you'd have to grind it up and hope that in some of the spores survived, Rosenberg said. It would be a mess. Quote, it seems to me that it would be an unnecessarily difficult task. Anyone who had access to the lab could probably get something more useful. Unquote. Rosenberg's analysis of the anthrax attacks, which had been widely reported, concluded that the culprit is probably a government insider, possibly someone from Fort Detrick. The Army facility manufactured anthrax before biological weapons were banned in 1969, and it has experimented with the Ames strain for defensive research since the early 1980s. Vandenlinder said that one of the two sets of anthrax specimens listed missing in Fort Detrick was a vol volume strain, which was one of the early days the U uh, which was used in the early days of the U.S. biological weapons program. It was not clear what type of anthrax in the other missing specimens was Eric Oldenburg, a soldier at pathology lab, a soldier and pathology lab technician who left Fort Detrick and is now a police detective in Phoenix, said in an interview that the Ames was the only anthrax strain he worked on in the lab. All right, so uh, we're just still reading from this article CT now uh, from CT now and uh, anthrax missing from the army lab. And this is from the Hartford Current from January 20th of 2002. And uh, just in, we're going to skip a little bit of the section now. And down at the bottom, we're going to say that Assad said he believed the harassment was uh, behind him until last October, until after September 11th terrorist attacks. He said that it was when the FBI contacted him saying that someone had mailed an anonymous letter a few days before the existence of the anthrax-laced mail became known, naming Assad as a potential bioterrorist. FBI agents decided the note was a hoax after interviewing Assad. But Assad said he believed the note's timing makes the author a suspect in the anthrax attacks. And he is convinced the details of his work contained in the letter means the author must be a former Fort Detrick colleague. So there was a lot of speculation at that time. Um, they didn't know exactly where the anthrax had come from. And I, I think they still don't exactly. Uh, the guy that they pinned it on, they weren't able to actually figure out exactly if he did it because he died of cancer or something. Uh, something unfortunate. Um, so... That uh, was an interesting article to read at that like historical time during during that time, right? And all the leaks and things again at Fort Detrick and uh, people coming into the lab and they didn't have a logging system and just uh, had loose uh, loose uh, you know uh, security procedures going on. You know, no big deal. Not dealing with some of the most deadly uh, materials known to men, uh, but that's not a big deal. No worries. Uh, the next article that we're going to jump into here is also from the UCLA.edu, uh, and this is a source from the Vanity Fair from pages 180 to 200, 
um, from October of 2003, and it was posted on September 15th of 2003 uh, from the Vanity Fair. So we're reading this from the UCLA Department of Epidemiology uh, from the School of Public Health. And uh, this is also a lengthier article. I believe I have some parts highlighted to help us get through uh, the more important parts that we wanted to jump into. But there's some very interesting connection, connections in this article uh, to Dugway, uh, the Proving Grounds, the Biological Weapons uh, Research Facility in Utah there that we've talked about before, as well as some other characters in this article that we'll be getting into uh, and you'll be able to find the full length of this article in the show notes so source vanity fair the message in the anthrax maybe now you know a little bit more about where i got the title for this episode after fing after fingering joe klein for primary colors and helping snare the alleged atlanta olympics bomber the author, a professor of English at Vassar, was asked to analyze the 2001 anthrax letters. Frustrated with the FBI's anthrax task force, he unseals his investigation of a most intriguing and disturbing suspect. See if I can fix. Oh, that works just fine. By Don Foster. In the spring of 1998, an officer at Dugway Proving Ground in Utah called the veteran bio-warrior William C. Patrick III to ask for his help. The Army wanted to convert some of its deadly anthrax into a dry powder, but in Patrick's words, quote, didn't have a freeze dryer, didn't have a spray dryer, and no drying capabilities at all, unquote. The Soviets hadn't let the 1972 Biological and Toxic Weapons Convention stop them from producing 4,500 metric tons of anthrax per year. But when the Americans signed it, they put, a, they put Bill Patrick out to pasture and then seemingly forgot the art, developed by Patrick in 1959, of weaponizing Bacillus anthraxis without milling. Now Patrick had to re-educate the Army's top microbiologist, showing them how to freeze-dry a slurry of anthrax simulant, how to purify it into trillions of spores per gram in a centrifuge, and how to remove the electrostatic charge to prevent clumping. On one visit to Dugway, Patrick said that he had employed the less sophisticated method of acetone extraction to produce a pound of dry anthrax in a single day, enough to kill thousands of people. Patrick now says that he misspoke when he claimed to have produced the pound of anthrax. Oh, he just, he misspoke there, guys. <laughs> For nearly two decades, until Richard Nixon shut down America's offensive bio programs in 1969, Bill Patrick worked in a secret government laboratory designing and testing germ agents. His skull and crossbones calling card described him as a biological warfare consultant. An old-school warrior, Patrick 77 looks like a big teddy bear, but he continually slips into talk of mass destruction. When lecturing on biodefense, he speaks of, quote, beautiful bomblets, unquote, and how many people in the U.S. could kill in good weather with a dry bioweapons agent, quote, especially in the Middle East, unquote. In February 19th of 1999, Patrick briefed two dozen officers at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, on his recent visits to Dugway. 
Quote, the principles of biological warfare that we discovered 35 to 40 years ago have not changed, unquote, Patrick held up a sealed vial containing 8 grams of highly refined powder. Quote, now you're very fortunate today, he said, unquote. Quote, that I've carried in my suitcase here is a sample of anthrax. The only requirement I have is you don't drop it, unquote. His audience tittered nervously, nervously as the bottle passed from one from hand to hand. Quote, I want to bring several things to your attention, unquote, said Patrick. Quote, look how easily that powder flows. It is composed of three to five microns, the particle size that gets down into your lungs and causes the infection, unquote. Then he came clean. It was not really anthrax, but rather Bacillus globigii, or BG, the army's anthrax simulant, of course. Quote, now, if you think I'm stupid enough to release anthrax in that powdered form, unquote, Patrick said with a grin, quote, you're giving me too much credit. Patrick's BG sample was purified to trillions spores per gram near the theoretical limit and better than anything ever produced by Iraq, South Africa, or the Soviet Union. So they're talking about the Project Coast there, right? In a, un, in for the South Africa. In an untrained eye could not differentiate it from the anthrax powder that Patrick had produced in 1959. The purpose of the exercise at Dugway, however, was defensive, to prepare our nation for bioterror attack. In April of 1999, Patrick told Fox News that in two years there will be an attack with a sophisticated agent manufactured overseas. His prediction was not far off the mark. By October 12th of 2001, the press was reporting that Bob Stevens, the 63-year-old tabloid photo editor at the American Media Inc. in Boca Raton, Florida, who had mysteriously succumbed to inhalation anthrax on October 5th, had been infected at work. Inhalation anthrax comes from breathing in spores and is far deadlier than the cutaneous form of the disease, which is usually contracted through cuts and scratches on the skin. Spores were found throughout the AMI building with hot spots in the mailroom on the victim's keyboard. That day, I called the Supervisor Special Agent James R. Fitzgerald to, at top of the FBI profiler and threat assessment expert, expert. He said that the anthrax had been discovered at NBC and that he might be sending me some documents. All right. So interesting. We learned about their, uh, this Patrick, um, let's see, Patrick Fitz, Fitzgerald. Patrick, give me a sec here, Patrick Leahy, was that right, was that the guy's name, let's make sure, I don't know why the find keeps jumping around like that, uh, William C. Patrick the third, okay, yeah, William C. Patrick the third, uh, Bill Patrick, as they called him, the uh, bio, what was the quote, the bioweapons guru or something like that. <laughs> uh, that That is interesting. And his development in 1959 of like anthrax down to better anthrax than they could have produced in Iraq. Uh, let, let's see. The main obstacle 
to in the investigation I'm reading on in the article of investigating anonymous writing is simply that there is so much of it. Take the epidemic hoax of the anthrax letters. Since April of 1997, the first recorded incident of the major mailed anthrax hoax, law enforcement agencies have responded to countless chemical and biological weapons hoaxes, an estimated of 10,000 of them in October of 2001 alone, following the news of Bob Stevens' infection. Most mailed bioterror threats contain harmless house powders and an anonymous message from the offender. Uh, skipping down in the article, there's some parts about the manufacturing that I want to get into here. Uh, it's quite a lengthy article, so obviously I can't read the whole thing today. So we're going to jump down on October 12th, John Doe's NBC letter of September 18th is discovered. Finally, all Americans will understand our vulnerability to biological terrorism. Unfortunately, unfortunately the post office sorting machines were a little too rough on the envelopes. A lot more people than John Doe ever intended are about to get sick. On October 31st, 2001, Fort Detrick's commander on Capitol Hill speaking up to a congressional, a congressional committee about, quote, energetic, unquote, anthrax hours after Kathy Nugent, a South Bronx hospital worker, died from inhalation anthrax. Swabs were taken from her home, her workplace, her mailbox, but not a single spore was discovered. I sent an email to a friend in the FBI's New York field office. Forensics are not my department. I wrote, but I but has sorry i wrote but has the amerithrax tax force assigned to the investigations taken swabs from the garbage dumpsters if nugent dropped her trash into a dumpster that had already contained anthrax discarded by the offender or possibly an anthrax laced letter discarded by abc cbs or nbc the or the post then might those spores have spread into the air in a sufficient quantity to be inhaled my source wrote back to say that quote they think nugent got the real snout full of anthrax unquote the task force hoped that this latest fatality would help lead them straight to the killer perhaps there was a person or a location that couldn't that could account for the her exposure to airborne anthrax quote they are still looking for that secret place unquote my source wrote at the end though kathy nugent's death was written off as an insoluble mystery in november some of the west's top bio warriors converged on on swindon england for an advanced training course for the united nations monitoring verification and inspections commission one of the names on hand for the conference was stephen j hatfield a former usa mriid virologist uh, and protege of Bill Patrick's. So, Stephen J. Hatfield, does that sound like a familiar name to you? We'll learn more about that character later. I pulled open this article called The Pursuit of Stephen Hatfield. He says he says he's a patriot and some on someone on the front lines of war against of the war against terror sings his praise, but his provocative life and career have kept him at the center of the S FBI's frustrating hunt for the anthrax killer it couldn't be steve hatfield no way that's that other article that that vanity fair or uh, this uh this article here links to from the message in the anthrax from vanity fair in 2003 october in 2003 and it says here um 
let's make sure I'm back in the right section. Let's see. Now I've gone and lost my spot. Okay, here we go. Stephen J. Hatfield, a former USAMRIID virologist and protege of Bill Patrick's. Those who completed the course and were certified would have a chance to join the search for Saddam's bioweapons in Iraq. While on the 12th day course was underway, someone sent another bioterror threat, postmarked on in November in London, to Senator Daschle. When the powder proved non-toxic, the letter was filed away and escaped further scrutiny. 94-year-old Ottilie Lundgren of Oxford, Connecticut, scrumbled, uh, succumbed to anthrax on November 21st, making her the fifth fatality. The infection was believed to have come from a cross-contaminated letter. If you have a compromised immune system, it takes only a few spores for bee anthraxis to begin its silent work inside your body. Lundgren had simply been unlucky. An estimated 85 million pieces of mail were processed by the Washington, D.C. and New Jersey postal facilities, while now Dashiell and Leahy letters were in the system. It's surprising how few of us got sick. All right, skipping down in the article, it's like a, a novel. In December 2001, Dr. Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, a noted bioweapons expert, delivered a paper contending that the perpetrators of the anthrax crime was an American microbiologist whose training and possession of the Ames strain powder pointed to the government insider with experience in the U.S. military lab. In March of 2002, she told BBC that the anthrax uh, deaths may have resulted from a secret project to examine the practicability of sending real anthrax through the mail an experiment that misfired despite such precautions as taped envelope seals. That surprising hypothesis made Rosenberg a target for knee-jerk criticism, but complete, uh, competent sources within the biowarfare establishment thought she might be right. Very interesting. All right, so now there's a few simulated attacks of anthrax discussed here, and we're going to get through the bulk of this next part, and then we'll move on to the next article. So it is also a matter of record that in 1965, military scientists gassed Washington National Airport and a Greyhound bus terminal using BG. Most Americans would like to think that our government doesn't do that kind of thing anymore. I like to report, for example, that our military had nothing to do with those grass gas incidents at Baltimore, Washington, and Washington National Airports in 1997, though the FBI won't confirm it. I've been told that at least one of those three events uh, involved the dissemination not of BG, but of BT, and same, the same substance the FBI discovered in Hatfield's refrigerator in August of 2002. It is not my job to indict or to try my own suspect for the anthrax murders, and even the FBI should have hard evidence linking Hatfield to a crime. He will remain innocent until proven guilty, but all Americans have the right to know more about the system that allowed Stephen Hatfield to become one of the nation's leading bioterrorist experts. He is a fellow with a fake PhD who posed for the Washington Times as a bioterrorist with the homemade plague uh, disseminator, and who boasted 
as recently as last year as having served with the apartheid government's notorious Celia Scouts during the Rhodesian anthrax epidemic. I have three different editions of this curricula vitae, his CV, uh, each one a tissue of lies. How did such a rascal come into instructing the CIA and the FBI, Defense Intelligence Agency, Army, Navy, Marines, U.S. Marshals, and the State Department on such matters as handling the deadly pathogens and uh, bioterrorism incidents? Unquote. How did he happen to acquire, to quote from his resume, a uh, quote, working knowledge of the former U.S. and foreign biological warfare programs, wet and dry biological weapons agents, large-scale productions of bacterial, rickettsial, and viral biological weapons pathogens and toxin stabilizers and other additives, former BG simulant production methods, open-air testing, and vulnerability trials, single and two-fluid nozzle dissemination, and bomblet design? How did, or unquote, how did he obtain clearance to operate in top military labs on exotic viral pathogens such as Ebola and level 3 pathogens such as bubonic plague and anthrax? In August of 2000, Hatfield trained forces at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa using a makeshift bioterror, quote, kitchen, unquote, lab that he built himself out of scavenged parts as well as biosafety cabinets taken from USAMRIID. The borrowed cabinets suitable for the turning germs into weapons are still missing and are said to have been destroyed. Hatfield, a certified scuba diver, once spoke of how to use a pond in the Frederick Municipal Forest a few miles away from his former residence in Maryland to dispose of toxins. On that information, the FBI searched Whiskey Springs Pond and found a homemade biosafety cabinet. The pond, when later drained, disclosed a rusty bicycle and a street sign, but no new evidence. The summer, this summer, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Associated Press ran stories on Hatfield's activities as a designer of simulated bioterror labs. None mentioned that Hatfield sprayed his trainees with samples of aerosolized BG. When questioned about these activities, Hatfield, in an apparent contradiction of his 2002 resume, denied having knowledge of how to refine dry bacterial powder to the level achieved by army scientists. The most curious piece of the fieldwork noted on Stephen Hatfield's most recent curricula vitae, his CV, is that of, quote, open-air testing and vulnerability trials, unquote. In the 2001 paper, quote, Biological Warfare Scenarios, unquote, Bill Patrick called the 1965 simulated attack on the New York subway, quote, one of the most important vulnerability studies, unquote, of the 70 he conducted. In 1969, when the Army's biowarfare program was officially terminated, Stephen Hatfield was still in fifth grade. By 1998, Hatfield was Patrick's sidekick in one in what one colleague has described as a Batman and Robin team. But it was from U USAMRIID that Hatfield claimed to have acquired his knowledge of working with Army-sponsored, quote, vulnerability, unquote, trials. Several of America's bioweaponeers have said for the record that the anthrax attacks has an upside. The killings have forced long-awaited FDA approval of the Bioport Anthrax Vaccine Facility and prompted increased federal spending on biodefense by $6 billion to, to, in 2003 alone. 
but the anthrax offender also diverted law enforcement resources when we needed them most and wreaked havoc on the U.S. Postal Service, he said. Or sorry, he has shown the world how to disrupt the American economy with minimal expense and how to kill with minimal risk of being caught. Now that it's been done once, it seems likely to happen again, Bill Patrick, whose expertise in the wrong hands may be deadly, even though he is not has advised our military to be prepared for something far worse. Quote, people say to me, biological weapons are not effective. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, you look at an atomic energy, you look at a chemical method of infection, nothing, I mean nothing produces what biological warfare does when, you're, when you do your planning and you have the right agent and the right dissemination and delivery system. Any questions? So that article will be linked in the show notes. Stephen Hatfield. Um, let me, let's go ahead and clean up these tabs here and we'll get that article back up so we can review that really quick. Um, interesting connections there. Uh, I just want to take a look at a few references doing it live here. Stephen J. Hatfield. So Stephen J. Hatfield is uh, an American physician, pathologist, and biological weapons expert. Uh, he became the subject of extensive media coverage beginning in mid-2002 when he was suspect of the 2001 anthrax attacks. Uh, so there's that a little bit more. Bruce Edward Ivins as the sole proprietor of the anthrax. So in 2008, the government settled Hatfield's lawsuit for 4.6 million annuity, totaling 5.8 million in payment. The government officially exonerated him of any involvement in the anthrax attacks, and the Justice Department identified another military scientist, Bruce Edward Ivins as the sole proprietor of the anthrax attacks. Jeffrey A. Taylor, the U.S. Attorney of the District of Columbia, wrote a letter to Hatfield's lawyer that, quote, we have concluded based on laboratory access rec records, witness accounts, and other information that Dr. Hatfield had no access to the particular anthrax used in the attacks, and he was not involved in the anthrax mailings. So, but this other individual, Bruce Edward Ivins, uh, he was... Uh, suspected and uh he was suspected proprietor of the 2001 anthrax attacks and he died on july 29th 2008 of an overdose of tylenol in an apparent suicide after learning that criminal charges were likely to be filed against him by the federal federal bureau of uh investigation the fbi so coincidentally enough july 29th is my birthday uh but also uh that he suicided as many in the biological weapons uh, scientists who are you know potentially tied up in any of the stuff that goes on uh, there's a lot of suicides there's a lot of sh a string a whole slew and you know it seems like this guy would know how much Tylenol to take properly so that's interesting um, that he would commit suicide being uh, you know well-renowned scientist and someone who you know 
was indicted into the anthrax attacks as being, you know, someone related to that. So that's that's very interesting uh, that he suicided himself. Uh, now I just want to jump into some reading from the book that we've discussed before in the BioSci War. Uh, we are going to jump into the book from Chris Newby. The book is The Secret is Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons from Chris Newby. And we read this book in the TikTok bio-op and the TikTok bio-op part two mainly. I think we got to it finally in the TikTok bio-op part two. But let's just go press this button here. And getting into Bitten, uh, Chris Newby was able to do a lot of investigation, not just into Lyme disease, but she also was able to uh, interview a lot of biological weapons researchers, some of the people even involved with the anthrax uh, investigations and some of the people accused. So there's interesting information from her book about anthrax. And we also watched an interview with her from Ricky Verandas of the Ripple Effect podcast. And that is back in the BioSciWar TikTok bio-op, which you can read. Now, reading from pages 46 uh, through 49. The Jan... Uh, sorry, let's make sure we're lined up. That January, the Canadians were conducting field tests on a series of chemical and bioweapons bombs with their allies, the United States and the United Kingdom. Although in his letter to Dale, Willie did not describe the biological weapons agents being tested, in July 1953, Canadian, quote, special weapons, unquote, annual report indicates that around the time that he was there, the Suffield Experimental Station conducted a series of sarin nerve gas tests. Other agents in development included anthrax, uh, Bacillus anthraxis, plague, Yersinia perstis, uh, Brucella, Brucella suis, and the tick-borne microbe Telerima, uh, friend, I'm not even going to try to say that, and one of the most poisonous biological weapons substances known to humans, Botulinum toxin, a neurotoxin produced by the bacterius, by the bacterium Clostridium <laughs> botulinum. In 2000, in her 2005 book *Biological Weapons: From the Invention of the State-Sponsored Programs to Contemporary Bioterrorism*, medical anthropologist Jean Gilliman, now a senior fellow at the Security Studies Program in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, describes the political situation as Willie became one of the 13,538 civilian employees of the U.S. Chemical and Biological Weapons Program. Quote, the atomic bomb and the Cold War signaled a momentous change in the U.S. Biological Weapons Program. The vision of the scale of the internationally spreading diseases expanded strategic attacks on the on par with the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and with the Soviet Union and its allies as a potential targets unquote the program was managed by the US Army Chemical Corps out of Camp Dietrich later renamed Fort Dietrich in rural Maryland about 50 miles northwest of Washington DC this Hydra-headed military empire included animal research at Plum Island, previously Fort Terry, just off Long Island, New York, field testing at Dugway Proving Grounds in central Utah, 
and a facility for mass-producing biological agents in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Some research was done at the Naval Medical Research Facility Unit 3 uh, in AMRU 3. Uh, and uh, in Cairo, Egypt, where zoologist Harry Hoogstrahl, Ph.D., had amassed a large collection of ticks from around the world. Fort Dietrich was also home to the base for uh, Special Operations Division's secretive team working on covert biological agents and delivery systems for the Central Intelligence Agency. The staff, to staff this massive scientific effort, the Army's recruiting young scientists such as Willie often funded them through the U.S. Public Health Services, later the National Institute of Health, and the National Academy of Sciences. The secrecy for these projects was modeled upon the strict guidelines developed for the Manhattan Project, whose scientists had signed a confidentiality agreements and had not been informed of the ultimate purpose behind the experiments of that was that was weapons development. After the Canadian field tests, Willie returned to his room at the York Hotel in Calgary. The room was appointed with a wash basin and a mirror against the wall and his desk on the opposite side. As Willie looked at himself in the mirror, his eyes were drawn to a framed image on the wall behind him. He turned to see the photo of a large cathedral in Basel. That night, he wrote in a few le in a letter in a letter to his wife. Quote, well, my dearest, Dali, Calgary, is far away from Basel, Switzerland, but the first thing I saw in my room was a picture from Basel's cathedral, like a greeting from a native town, unquote. And with a holy sign of affirmation, he continued, quote, Dali, pretty soon I'll take you into my arms again and tell you more about my Calgary trip, another milestone in my life, unquote. He come to Canada to attend a meeting of entomology, Entomological warfare experts hoping to learn everything he could about mass-producing and infecting fleas, mosquitoes, chiggers, ticks, and fleas with, various, with a variety of germs that caused human disease. But after hearing from a room full of entomolo entomological warfare experts and after witnessing the field tests at Sut Sutfield, he was now most certainly knew that he was no longer protecting humans from tiny eight-legged beasts. He was instead turning those beasts into lethal weapons. And that's, of course, talking about Willy Bergdofer there and uh, some of the various um, studies that the Canadians and the U.S. were doing with special weapons in 1953, which was also, you know, anthrax. And now we're going to skip ahead a bit here in Bitten, reading from pages 137 now. And we've read on this before in the BioSci War, and we're talking about the 8-Ball. Standing next to the 8-Ball, an earthbound submarine-like structure with a 1.25-inch thick steel wall, portholes, uh, hatches, and pressure-tight doors, Number six began reacting the history, uh, reciting the history at Fort, of Fort Dietrich with military precision. Before a devastating fire, the eight ball had been enclosed within a building rigged with a metal catwalks and ventilation systems. Volunteers sat around the perimeter with their face masks pressed against the sphere's rubber-gassed portholes, uh, breathing in clouds of biological agents. 
that were being evaluated for particular size, moisture level, moisture level, temperature, and humidity. Afterward, physicians would monitor the volunteers' uh, infectivity rates to study the progression of the disease and the efficacy of the vaccines and the treatments. Uh, reading on. This was part of the rigorous process the Army used for the developing the diverse portfolio of biological agents. It needed a mix of lethal and incapacitating ones, deployable for various climates and objectives. The Army scientific director for this effort from 1956 to 1970 was microbiologist Riley D. Housewright. By the time President Nixon ended the offensive biological weapons program in 1969, number six told me that Housewright had expanded the list of go-to biological agents to include anthrax, Bacillus anthraxis, Q fever, Venezuelan equine uh, encephalitis virus, Bruce, Brusolius, and Tularemia. Um, tularemia can be transmitted by ticks f or from airborne particles. In an unpublished handwritten note, Housewright listed 28 agents that had been evaluated. After the tour, number six invited me out for, quote, the best Chinese food in the state, unquote, which turned out to be a lavish buffet uh, paired by his wife, prepared by his wife, an immigrant from China. He had also invited three dinner guests, biodefense special Cold War historian members of what he called the, quote, brain trust, unquote. They were all retired government scientists who agreed to hear my story and help if they could. She's talking about um, Chris Newby's story, and she's, you know, investigating Lyme disease and Willie Bergdorfer and ticks, and she had Lyme disease, and so she's letting them know their story. So she's talking from the first person there. Uh, she interviewed, uh, like I said, all these bi different biological weapons uh, experts. One was USA MRID epidemiologist, and other was a fighter from a fighter pilot from turned scientist who had recently come out of retirement to deploy Ebola labs in Africa. The third was a virologist who did long stints in the Congo lab. In addition to having an expertise in science, the three were all well-read in the classics and history, and able to quote Greek philosophers and historical military leaders with ease. As we sat down to dinner, number six's wife began covering the table with Chinese dishes, uh, which she had been working on for days. Drunken chicken, mapau tafu, fish ragoon, eggplant, boiled beef, pea cakes, pecking duck, uh, peking duck, and yaozi dumplings, and three kinds of pie. Quote, I've been working three days KP duty to help her prepare this dinner, unquote, said number six, referring to the kitchen patrol military slang for food prep done by soldiers. During the evening, I was impressed by the brain trust. Among other subjects, they discussed Ebola outbreak, technical details on why they believed that their colleague Bruce Ivins had been framed in the anthrax mailer, and why the commercialization of the U.S. military was bad for the country. I described my investigation into open-air testing of live bacteria and have been and sorry, and asked for clarification on some of the technical aspects of Willie's research. I was a stranger, and they seemed guarded. None, none knew of a military connection to Lyme disease, but it didn't seem outlandish to them that there could be one. I left Dietrich empty-handed and later wondered 
if at the same time I was writing up my notes on them, the brain trust was filling a report on me. Driving back to D.C. in the pouring rain, I kept looking in the rearview mirror. I didn't know whom to trust anymore. Then a few days later, number six sent me a published UAS, or sorry, USA MRIID paper, quote, discernment between deliberate and natural infectious disease outbreaks. It provided me with the instructions for sort of fitting things together on the Lyme disease puzzle. And I'm just going to pull open that document here. Uh, that's where, yeah, first paper here. We re we've read that book, or that document that Chris just uh, talked about, I think in like the first Biosci War or the second, and deliberate an epidemic, or sorry, deliberate or natural infectious disease. And if you recall that, there was the like nine points or whatever, the clues, clues that it's a biological weapons attack versus a clues to a deliberate epidemic. And that was a highly interesting section. I'll, when I'm watching this again, remember to refer back to the show where we brought that into the record here. Now, going back to Newbie, uh, 149 is our next bookmark that we're going to go for. So that was interesting, right? And then last she mentioned that they thought that Bruce Ivins was empty. The brain trust had mentioned that they figured that he was being set up. And then, of course, he overdosed on Tylenol. So this is a short chapter uh, called Fear. And uh, Fear from Chapter 17 of Chris Newby's book, uh, Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons by Chris Newby. Chapter 17. And let's just... Go to this scene just to switch it up a little. Camp Dietrich was born of fear. It now helps to generate more fear and is there by itself regenerated. That was Theodore Roseberry, chief of airborne infections at Camp Dietrich. Quote, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Unquote. Ian Malcolm, chaos theory mathematician and Jurassic Park. <laughs> Quoting Hollywood movies now. In Febu on February 13th, 2001, William Patrick III, the former chief architect... Uh, we just learned about William Patrick III in that article, didn't we? Uh, the Fort Dietrich Labs, uh, who was producing anthrax. In February 13th of 2001, William Patrick III, the former chief, chief architect at Fort Dietrich's biological weapons program in... Uh, Joel McCleary's and Joel McCleary's friend gave a public talk on the threat of biological warfare at the Washington Roundtable on science and policy on the business card. He described his current job as a biological warfare consultant, unquote. He was the ultimate insider on the threat of biological weapons, and he was there to offer his advice on how to protect the country from what he considered to be a real and present danger. He was essentially profiting from fear. Patrick started the talk by opening his briefcase and displaying the contents to the audience. <clears throat> this sample case I brought with me today holds glass bottles containing the exact simulants of the weaponization form of anthrax 
can the virus causing Venezuelan equine encephalitis? Uh, reading ahead. Now, I've carried this case through a number of airports on my way to meeting over the last 12 to meetings over the last 12 years but no one has ever stopped and asked what are these peculiar looking powders and this is a uh, again patrick talking uh the gentleman william patrick the third uh he went on describing uh, he, sorry start starting again he went on to describe military vulnerability tests conducted to educate our leaders about the threat of biological weapons. He showed the audience a small plastic spray bottle. He said it was a sample, or sorry, it was capable of spraying large particles of liquid biological agent that would be relatively easy for terrorists to produce. Quote, yet when I travel through airports, no one has ever stopped me, unquote, Patrick said. To further prove his point, he spoke about a big metal handheld spray duster that he had packed in his suitcase. It could disseminate very small particles, one to three microns in diameter, small enough to evade human respiratory tract's defense mechanisms. The particles could lodge inside the tiny sacs within the lungs, causing deep-seated infection. I had been through all the major airports in the country, and I have been through the x-rays at the CIA, the DIA, the State Department, and the House of Representatives, and nobody has ever stopped me to ask me what I am carrying. The guards at the security points do a good job of stopping people with knives or pistols, but they don't have a clue as to what the biological weapons terrorists might be carrying around, Patrick said. Then Patrick described some quote, large area coverage, unquote, vulnerability test that the military conducted on suspect aid, on unsuspecting public over the years. In the 1950s, Operation Sea Spray, U.S. Navy boats sprayed two-mile-long line of aerosolized, quote, simulant, unquote, off the coast of the San Francisco. He described how effective such an attack could be if weather conditions were right. Patrick neglected, however, to tell the audience that his supposedly harmless simulant Bacillus subtilis, a spore-forming bacterium, had sent 11 people to Sanford Hospital during the trial because of serious urinary tract infections. One of these patients, Edward J. Nevin, an elderly man with a, comprised, a compromised immune system, died three weeks later. He described another simulated attack on Elgin Air Force Base located at Florida's Panhandle on the open-air hog cholera virus test conducted in July of 1951. Patrick said, quote, Our mock attacks were expected, and the guards and guard dogs were posted around the perimeter, but we were not to have, we were not to go on the base. We attacked from a road around a mile outside of the security fence, behind a thicket of scrubbed pines between us and the base. If you've been down to the Carolinas or Georgia, you know how these thick pine trees grow. Yet the aerosol passed through them without any uh, diminution and went through the housing areas and contaminated the hangars and the plane cockpits. Samples showed the high levels of contamination, unquote. And finally, Patrick described a naval test off the coast of Alaska explaining why an aerosol attack would be done with stealth mode, leaving very little evidence behind, quote, we sprayed BG spores, Bactillus globigii, uh, another live bacteria simulant, above 20 miles upwind of ships with sam sample samplers. 
When we aeros- when the aerosol reached the ships, it was pulled by the airstream and remained at very high concentrations for about half, uh, for about an hour and a half. We found especially heavy concentrates of spores in the engine room, which pulls in very large amounts of air dis- uh, and to dissipate heat. And the exterior of the interior surfaces of the ships were only very lightly contaminated. The same air system that brought the aerosol and removed the organism with very little residue having fallen out. There were, there were similar findings in other tests where a building was contaminated with primary aerosol. It comes in at high concentration, gets you infected, and then departs, leaving a very low residue. People become infected because the human body is nothing more than a vacuum pump pulling in the aerosol. A little more than seven months after Patrick's talk, the 9-11 terrorist attack happens, followed by a deadly anthrax mailings. Alleged perpetrator, uh, sorry, allegedly perpetrated by Bruce Ivins. So we've heard about him a few times now. A microbiologist and biodefense researcher who worked at Fort Detrick and killed himself with an overdose of Tylenol. This raises the provocative question, uh, was the timing of the anthrax mailings a pure coincidence, or did Patrick's fear inducing talk motivate the mailer, whomever it was, to demonstrate how vulnerable the country was to such an attack? And again, this is reading from Bitten, from Chris Newby's book, and the interesting tie-ins to what we've been discussing so far today in M- Message, what, what, what did we name the damn episode? <laughs> Message in the Anthrax here in the Bio-Sci-War. And now reading from page 157 of Chris Newby's book, Bitten. And this is a new chapter called The Fog of War, Chapter 18. So we just read all of Chapter 17, and now we're going to go to Chapter 18. A single automobile spraying germs across the country through its tailpipe could cause an epidemic that could destroy crops, kill off livestock, livestock, or wipe out hundreds of thousands of people. Unquote. Jack Anderson, Montana Standard Post, August 30th, 1965. On June 6, 1966, an invisible man, a man who looked like everyone else and no one, stepped into a crowded subway car at the 14th Street Station in Manhattan. He was of average height and build. His thinning hair was combed over his cute bald head. Sorry, (laughs) his cue ball head, not his cute bald head. Uh, His cue ball head. Uh, Dyslexia is a real thing I heard, I don't know. He wore a cheap suit of dark sunglasses, what looked like a photographic light meter hung off his belt. He carried a plastic briefcase that emanated a faint whirling sound. The man was Charles Cincinni, a CIA weapons developer from the Special Operations Division at Fort Detrick and the leader of the 21-person team running covert operations to see how vulnerable New Yorkers might be to a bioweapons attack. As he rode on the subway car, one of his operatives stood at the street level over the subway ventilation grate and opened the brown paper bag he was carrying. As an approaching train rumbled beneath his feet, he pulled out a light bulb and shattered it over the grate. Upon shattering it, he released an invisible odorless cloud of bacteria that was sucked into the tunnel by passing trains and rapidly disseminated throughout the whole network of tunnels. The cloud held approximately 87 million spores of Bactillus 
subtilis, a bacterium thought to be harmless. It had been freeze-dried and processed into particles and mimicked the physical properties of weaponized anthrax. For the next few hours, Cincinnati's team rode around the subway system carrying bacterial, quote, sniffers, unquote, disguised as briefcases and purses. Cincinnati's, quote, for photographic light meter, unquote, was actually a device that tracked temperatures and humidity at the end of the day. One of the sensors at the 23rd Street station showed, quote, calculated respiratory exposure to be 100,000 spores of breath five minutes after the light bulbs broke, unquote. Quote, by June 10th, a million New Yorkers were hatching spores into the wet warms of their lungs, unquote. And Cincinnati, said Cincinnati, had it been anthrax in the light bulbs, the spores would have put New York out of commission. This was one of many open-air tests conducted in the 1960s and 70s by the CIA and the U.S. Army and the Department of Defense. The coastal tests were conducted by personal and in Project Shipboard Hazard and Defense, the SHAD, who sprayed simulated and live biological chemical agents over the North Atlantic and Pacific Oceans near the Marshall Islands, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and the California coast. Land-based tests took place domestically in Alaska, Hawaii, Maryland, Florida, Utah, and Georgia, and internationally in Panama, Canada, and the United Kingdom. In 1964 and 1965, they used Bacillus subtilis to simulate the physical characteristics of the smallpox virus in airborne tests in Washington, D.C., National Airport, and Greyhound Bus Terminal. Some of these human experiments were revealed through the Senate in 1976 Church Committee Report, an independent Church of Scientology investigation, and a 2003 class action lawsuit filed against the U.S. government on behalf of the test subjects and the, veteran invol and the veterans involved in the SHADS project, projects. But a few of these open-air tests still classified. The records have been destroyed on the details of the operations have never been put in writing. All right, so that brings us to the intermission today. So that was, again, Chris Newby's book, Bitten, uh, reading about the different mentions of anthrax in that book, just to tie it in today to something that we've discussed previously here on the BioSci War. It's a highly recommended book, and I will be sure to link it up. I think that is one of the things that I may have forgotten to put in the show notes for today. Um, but... Now, what we're going to do is jump into uh, one of the previous episodes of the BioSci War. This is the BioSci War Purpose and Scope. This was the opening episode. And in this episode, we read, about, we read about the Global Strategic Trends document from the PNAC group and uh, that uh, neocon Donald Rumsfeldian uh, early 2000s group that was writing about some of the events that they were worried about into the future we're going to hear me reading about that document about some of the microbes that they talked about releasing in their uh, document on, let's see, the Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy, Forces, and Resources for a New Century. And I was going to read this again into the record today, and then I thought, hey, why not just allow me to do a little bit of the heavy lifting myself. So we're going to jump into that. Then we're going to hear a presentation on uh, the chapter on chemistry and warfare from this uh, book here, the presentation on theme chapter on chemistry and warfare uh, by the Bridgman Art Library. 
and it's uh it's kind of computer generated but there's some interesting points in there and it helps uh fill in the intermation space with something helpful for the bio war and then from there i'm gonna have to see about where we're at in the show how long we've been going and what we'll jump into next but let's go ahead and jump right into the intermission here and i will see you guys back here in a little bit thank you for watching the bio war the message in the anthrax or uh message in the anthrax is the title of today's show. Thank you. GrandTheftWorld.com. Speaking of Grand Theft World, um, if you go and join up in the membership, you can download it from the course section. We have it uploaded in there. So to do that, you can just go to Grand Theft World and go to join. And then you can also wait just a minute and that pop-up will come and you can enter your email and actually download this document, which will deliver straight to your inbox by going to grandtheftworld.com. And just reading a little bit about what the Global Strategic Trends Program and the people that wrote the document that we're going to be going over here, uh, reading a little bit about that before we go into it. And we're not going to like go as much into it as we did with the Army Operations Field Manual. So don't worry about that. <laughs> um, but they were established in 2001 to research and understand the potential trends that shape the information of the future of strategic in strategic context. It is undertaken at the Development Concepts and Doctrine Center, which is the UK's Joint Forces Command and based in Shrivenham, Wilshire. One of the main findings of the global strategic trends out of 2040 is that the era of 2040 will be the time transition characterized by instability in both relations between states and in the relations between groups within states. During this time frame, significant global trends will include climate change, rapid population growth, resource scarcity, and resurgence in ideology in a shift of power from west to east. Isn't that interesting? The struggle to establish an effective system of global governance is likely to be central in the theme of the era. So now we'll go read the actual Global Strategic Trends Out of 2040 document, which you can download from here. You could also get from our site. We make it nice and easy for you, the Grand Theft World. And let's go into uh, page two and three is where I wanted to start. Uh, the DCDC... Uh, strategic trends program provides a comprehensive analysis of the future strategic context out of 2040. The work is based on research conducted at DCDC in conjunction with subject matter experts across the range of disciplines. These experts come from a multitude of backgrounds including government and academia. It is a global view of future trends and DCDC has conducted workshops and consultations in Europe, Middle East, Asia, Africa, and North America to gain international perspective. The document is a contribution to a growing body of knowledge and is aimed at the defense community. It seeks to build on the defense community. Yeah, the Department of War, you mean? <laughs> it seeks to build on previous editions of global strategic trends with a more accessible format. It has a greater focus on defense and security issues and expands on other subjects including resources and resurgence of ideology. So this is basically like how the Crown and the Ministry of the Defense and the Ministry of Truth and, uh, uh, you know, how their global governance in 2040 will be ruling over you at that time. 
So going down onto page nine, let's see, was there anything interesting on page three? Purpose, the need for defense to understand the strategic, the future strategic context was articulated in the Strategic Defense Review in 1998, which confirmed the long-term nature of defense planning. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so some context on what we're about to read. And I'm not going to, I'm definitely like not covering the bulk of these documents. You can go through and see here they're talking about all the different things that are going to go on and the civil unrest and the, uh, here we're going to go with executive summary and implications for defense and security. This is on page nine. This section highlights the major themes and their relevance to defense and security. The era of 2040, reading from the document, from the executive summary and implications for defense and security, the area, the era of 2040 will be a time of transition. It is likely to be characterized by instability, both in relations between states and in relations between groups within states. During this time frame, the world is likely to face the reality of a changing climate, rapid population growth, resource scarcity, resurgence of ideology, and shifts in global power from west to east. No state, group, or individual can meet these challenges in isolation. Only collective response will be sufficient. Hence, the struggle to establish an efficient system of global governance capable of responding to these challenges will be a central theme of the era. Globalization, global inequity, climate change, and technological innovation will affect the lives of everyone on the planet. There will be constant tension between the greater interdependence between states and groups of individuals and intensifying competition between them. Dependence on a complex global system such as the global supply chain for resources is likely to increase the risk of systematic failures. So they've laid out a problem. There's all these things with climate change, even though they've been saying that forever and that we're still, you know, not underwater. California and New York City are still not underwater and, and they're fine. And uh, the polar bears have not died. And it turns out carbon dioxide is actually good for the planet and good for the plants and uh, isn't harmful. Um, we, we need to have a global governance because of all these problems. Like th they, they outline the problem. There's only one solution is global government. The distribution of continuing on reading the document, the distribution of global power will change out of out to 2040. The locus of global power will move away from the United States and Europe towards Asia. As the global system shifts from a unipolar towards a multipolar distribution of power, this shift, coupled with the global challenges of climate change, resource scarcity, and population growth, is likely to result in a period of instability in international relations accompanied by the possibility of intense competition between major powers. So they're still with the Malthusianism and the overpopulation, even though, you know, that hasn't been an issue. And of course, yeah, like larger population, there's probably going to be a lot of problems, but it, it's not an insurmountable um thing but they they categorize this as like it's imminent it's not fixable there's no way we're going to have these shortages like they're just genies they just know because of all their data exactly what's going to happen however the rise of individual states such as china should not be considered a, a certainty given the nature of the magnitude of challenges they face nor should their eventual influence over to be overestimated 
Instead, there will be several states and institutions competing for regional and global influence, cooperating and competing within the international community. Globalization is likely to continue, underpinned by the rapid and development of global telecommunications and resulting in pervasive information environment in which the global population will be capable of being online all the time. Politically, globalization is likely to raise the level of interdependence between states and individuals. Okay, so that document is something that I feel like you should also go download and read through. We're, we're clearly not going to do that today. Um, maybe some days we can read more into these things and go further. Uh, unfortunately, today I'm kind of already running up against the clock here. So we're going to jump right into what is from that document and what their plans were. What were some plans going back earlier in the 2000s or late 90s um, known as from the think tank group, the project for the new American century? which was a neoconservative think tank group based in Washington, D.C., uh, had members like uh, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, you know, the neocon uh, staff of uh, Bush who uh, were involved in a lot of nefarious things that went on during that time. Um, well, the Project for a New American Century and the Age of Bioweapons, 20 Years of Psychological Terror, says the Strategic Culture Foundation. Who are these guys? And what is this article here written in April 8th of 2020? Um, it goes into accusing the neocons of being involved in researching biological weapons and potentially bring the, being the precursor to uh, COVID-19 with the different anthrax things. Uh, that went on during that time and to jump right into what they may have said about that i went and downloaded rebuilding america's defenses which was a document from the project for a new american century strategic forces and uh st strategy forces and resources for a new century uh, in this document scrolling down to page two we find the text that says Okay, I wanted to read page two and three here. So this is going to be a little bit more reading. This is reading from the Project for a New American Century's document, Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy, Forces, and Resources for a New Century. This was coming out of the early 2000s. The group uh, is now no longer in existence since 2006 um, and has been succeeded by more groups like this that we'll go on to in the future in this show. But... Uh, let's just start in. In other words, until another great power challenger emerges, the United States can enjoy a respite from the demands of international leadership. Like a boxer between championship bouts, America can afford to relax and live a good life, certain that there will be enough time to shape up for the next big challenge. Thus, the United States can afford... Let's see, is that coming in okay for you guys? Yeah. But as we... Uh, there, let's go back. Thus, the United States can afford to reduce its military forces, close bases overseas, halt major forces, or sorry, halt major weapons programs, and reap the financial benefits of the peace dividend. But as we have seen over the past decade, there has been no shortage of powers around the world who have taken the collapse of the Soviet Empire as the opportunity to expand their own influence and challenge the American-led security order. 
Beyond the faulty notion of strategic pause, recent defense reviews have suffered from an inverted understanding of the military diminished of the Cold War struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union. America contaminated strategy uh, sorry, American containment strategy did not proceed from the assumption that the Cold War would be purely mili- would be a purely military struggle in which the U.S. matched the Red Army tank for tank. Rather, the United States would seek to deter the Soviets' military while defeating them economically and ideologically over time. And even within the realm of military affairs, the practice and deterrence allowed for what in military terms is called an economy of force. The principal job of NATO forces, for example, was to deter an invasion of Western Europe, not to invade and occupy the Russian heartland. Moreover, the bipolar nuclear balance of terror made both the United States and the Soviet Union generally cautious. Behind the smallest proxy war in the most remote region lurked the possibility of Armageddon. Thus, despite numerous miscalculations, though the five-decade of Cold War, the United States reaped an extraordinary measure of global security and stability simply by building a credible and relative terms inexpensive nuclear arsenal. In relative terms, it was inexpensive. Um, Then they show some differences between the Cold War and the 21st century. And in that table, and we're going to continue reading on. Over the decade of the post-Cold War period, however, almost everything has changed. The Cold War was a bipolar war. The 21st century war is, for the moment at least, decidedly unpolar, or unipolar. With America in the world's sole superpower, America's strategic goal used to be containment of the Soviet Union, Today, the task is to preserve the international security environment conducive to American interests and ideals. So the the United States' military new role is just to preserve and, you know, contain and achieve the things that are in America's best interest, even in a time of peace. The military's job during the Cold War was to defeat the Soviet expansionism. Today, it is tasked to secure and expand the zones of democratic peace. In quotes, that's very good that they put that in quotes. To deter the rise of new great power competitors and to defend key regions of Europe, East Asia, and the Middle East and to preserve American preeminence through the coming transformation of war made possible by new technologies. From 1945 to 1990, U.S. forces prepared themselves for a single global war that might be fought across many theaters. In the new century, the prospect is for a variety of theater of wars around the world against separate and distinct adversaries pursuing pursuing separate and distinct goals. During the Cold War, the main venue of superpower rivalry, the strategic center of gravity, was in Europe, where large U.S. and NATO conventional forces prepared to repulse a Soviet attack and over which nuclear war might begin. And with Europe now generally at peace, the new strategic center of concern appears to be shifting to East Asia. The mission for the America's armed forces have not diminished so much as shifted, or so much have shifted. The threats may not be as great, but there are more of them. 
During the Cold War, America acquired its security wholesale by global deterrence of the Soviet Union. Today, the same security can only be acquired at the retail level by deterring or when needed by compelling regional forces to act in ways that protect America's interests and principles. Compelling through psychological operations and MISO operations and psychological warfare, as we've talked about previously. This gap between diverse and expansive sets set a new strategic realities and diminishing defense forces as resources does not to explain does much to explain why the joint chiefs of staff routinely declare that they see high risk in executing the mission assigned to the u.s armed forces under the government's declared national military strategy indeed the jcs assessment conducted of the height of the kosovo air war was a was the risk level unacceptable such risks are the result of the combination of new missions described above and dramatically reduce the military force that has emerged from defense drawdown of the past decade today america spends less than three percent of its gross domestic product on national defense less than at any time since before world war ii in other words since the since before the united states established itself as the world's leading power and cut from 4.7 percent of gdp in 1992 the first real post-cold war defense budget um Let's see, page two and three. Okay, I, I read a lot of that, and I want to jump ahead a little bit here. That gives us a good idea of that part. And then I'm going to jump down to page 59 and 60 really quick. In fact, I might have been reading from a section that I didn't mean to read from necessarily, but that was decent uh, information to get into the record there. What I wanted to go after was... Here, where they talked about biological warfare and let's read from uh, the top of page or the middle of page 59 and we're going to read down to the bottom or to the paragraph here in page 60 really quick just to get this part into the record so further transformation advocate advocates tend to focus on the nature of revolutionary new capabilities rather than how to achieve the necessary transformation thus the national defense panel called the strategy of transformation without formulation uh, without formulating a strategy for transformation there has been little discussion of exactly how to change today's force into tomorrow's force while maintaining u.s military preeminence along the way Therefore, it will be necessary to undertake two-stage process of transition, whereby today's legacy forces are modified and selectively modernized with new systems readily available and true transformation when the result of vigorous experiments introduced radically new weapons, concepts of operation and organization to the armed services. These two-stage processes is likely to take several decades. The two-stage process yet although the precise shape and direction of transformation of the u.s armed forces remains a matter for rigorous experimentation and analysis it is possible to foresee the general characteristics of current revolution in military affairs broadly speaking these cover several principal areas of capabilities improved situational awareness sharing of information range of endurance of platforms of weapon precision and miniaturization speed and stealth automation and simulation characteristics will be combined in various ways to produce new military capabilities 
new classes of sensor commercial of sensors commercial and military on land and under sea and in the air so they're going to get all these new different types of weapons and i'm going to skip down a little bit the proliferation of ballistics and cruise missiles and long-range unmanned aerial vehicles will make it much easier to project military power around the globe munitions themselves will become increasingly accurate while new methods of attack electronic non-lethal biological will be more widely available low-cost long-endurance uavs and even unattained unattended missiles in a box will allow not only for long-range power projections for the sustained power projection simulation technologies will vastly improve military training and mission planning okay so they're going to go into here how they want to use uh, biological weapons basically um and so advances in biological warfare can that can target specific genotypes may transform biological warfare from the realm of terror to the politically useful tool so they talk about in this document in the pnac document which i was building up to there and kind of got on the wrong page and read some of the wrong record but Ultimately, that they're talking about race-specific bioweapons being used as a useful political tool um, and potentially in the realm of terror or as a political useful tool. So that was the Project for a New American Century, uh, PNAC, as they're known, and uh, some of the stuff they were talking about back in the early 2000s with using race-specific bioweapons uh, in their uh, research there, things that could potentially be useful for the future. All right, so right now I am going to go check on a couple things, but I am going to leave you with a nice intermission. We're going to continue on with the cyber. Chapter on Chemistry and Warfare Figure 2, The Use of Greek Fire Credit Bridgman Art Library. Chapter Learning Objectives. By the end of the chapter, you will recognize that the ability to produce weapons that specifically target living organisms is closely tied to recent advances in chemistry. Chemical weapons are classified according to mode of action, including lung irritants, such as chlorine gas, vescents, such as mustard gas, respiratory poisons, such as cyanide, and nerve agents, such as VX. Chapter Learning Objectives, Coat Biological weapons, which are derived from living organisms, include viruses, bacteria, and toxic compounds found in nature. Paradoxically, the same advances in our understanding of infectious agents that have led to decreases in deaths from infectious disease have led to refinement of biological weapons. Chapter Outline Early Use of Chemistry in Warfare Black Powder An explosive mixture of potassium nitrate, charcoal, and sulfur developed by the Chinese in the 10th century. An alternate source of potassium nitrate is found in bird droppings. High explosives Exemplified by nitroglycerine or trinitrotoluene, TNT, which contains internal nitrogroups, N.O. 2, that rapidly oxidize the rest of the molecule. 
detonation results in a volume expansion because of a rapid release of heat and gaseous products. High explosives, which decompose entirely to gaseous products in a process called detonation. NO2 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 Nitroglycerine 2,4,6 trinitrotoluene, TNT, factors affecting volume of a gas. Figure 4, Fritz Haber left, with Albert Einstein, a pioneer of gas warfare. Fritz Haber, left, with Albert Einstein. Haber, who pioneered gas warfare, said on receiving his Nobel Prize, in no future war will the military be able to ignore poison gas. It is a higher form of killing. Credit, Ape Emilio Segre Visual Archives. Chapter Outline Early Use of Chemistry in Warfare, Count. Harassing Agents. Compounds such as tear gas that temporarily incapacitate, rather than kill, the target. The first step towards lethal chemical warfare in World War I. Chapter Outline Chemical Warfare Agents Definition Classes Chemical substances, whether gaseous, liquid, or solid, which are used because of their direct toxic effects on humans, animals, or plants. Classes Classified by their mode of action, lung irritants, vesicants, respiratory poisons, nerve agents hallucinogens, and herbicides. Table 1, Types of Chemical Warfare Agents Classes of Chemical Weapons Chemical weapons are molecules that have selectively toxic effects on a living target. Chapter Outline Chemical Warfare Agents, Coat, Lung Irritants Damage lung tissue directly or via reaction to produce a corrosive compound. Exemplified by chlorine gas, Cl2. Cl2 is a powerful oxidizing agent and also reacts with H2O in the lungs to form hypochlorous acid, HOCL, which oxidizes cellular molecules. Lung irritants, or choking agents, damage cells within the bronchial passages, leading to leakage of fluid into the lungs. Table 2, Examples of Lung Irritants Action of hypochlorous acid, HOCAL. Figure 6, Chlorine Gas Attack in World War I. Credit, Corbus. Figure 7, Early Allied Gas Masks, known as P-Helmets. Credit, Corbus. Chapter Outline Chemical Warfare Agents, Coat, Vesicants. Produce painful blisters within any exposed tissue. Exemplified by mustard gas. Use of mustard gas in warfare led to the discovery that related compounds are useful anti-cancer drugs because they damage DNA. Vesicants, which include mustard gas, produce painful burns and blisters within any exposed tissue. Action of nitrogen mustard. Chapter Outline Chemical Warfare Agents, Coat, Respiratory Poisons. Interfere with oxygen use at the molecular level. Exemplified by cyanide. Cyanide leads to rapid death by inhibiting cytochrome oxidase, 
an enzyme essential for ATP production during cellular respiration. Respiratory poisons block an organism's use of oxygen at the cellular level. Action of cyanide Inactivates an enzyme essential for production of ATP through aerobic metabolism. Chapter Outline Chemical Warfare Agents, Coat, Nerve Agents Inactivate the enzyme acetylcholinesterase, which is essential for muscle contraction. The result is rapid death by respiratory paralysis. Exemplified by VX a new compound ideal for total destruction of a battlefield. Atropine acts as an antidote for nerve agents by blocking the acetylcholine receptor. Nerve agents block the normal transmission of nerve impulses from the brain to the muscles, leading to uncontrolled muscle contraction, convulsions, and respiratory paralysis. Table 3, Organophosphorus Nerve Gases Figure 11, Nicolas Cage Handling VX Gas in the Rock In the movie The Rock, 1996, biochemist Stanley Goodspeed is called in to help save San Francisco from a commando attack with VX gas. During his mission, he is exposed to the deadly chemical but fortunately is prepared with a syringe of atropine. Credit, Zuma Press Action of Atropine Atropine blocks the receptor for acetylcholine, ACK, so that no messages can be received by the muscle, thereby blocking the effects of a nerve agent. Experimental drugs may be factors in Gulf War Syndrome. Credit, Corbus, Chapter Outline Chemical Warfare Agents, Coat Hallucinogens are compounds that cause an individual to experience things that not real. Harassing agents that induce delusions and hallucinations. Exemplified by LSD. Herbicides are compounds that are selectively toxic to plants. Selectively toxic to plants. Exemplified by Agent Orange. Table 4, Chemical Agents Used and Estimated Effects in World War I. Credit, Data from Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI. The Rise of CB Weapons, Volume 1. Stockholm, Cypri, 1971. Figure 14, In Europe, Cleaning Up Explosives from Both World Wars Continues. Credit, Zuma Press. Table 5, Reported Cases of Post-World War II Use of Chemical Weapons. Chapter Outline Biological Warfare Agents Definition Early Examples. Living organisms such as bacteria or toxic material derived from them, which are intended to cause disease or death in humans, animals, or plants. Early examples Disease-infected cadavers, blankets, and clothing. Aeropoisons Biological weapons are disease-causing agents such as bacteria and viruses or their toxic products. Chapter Outline Biological Warfare Agents Coat Types of Modern Bioweapons Bacteria, for example, Bacillus anthracis, used by unknown parties to perpetrate the 2001 anthrax attacks. Viruses, for example, Variola, which causes smallpox and may be an emerging threat because individuals are no longer vaccinated against it. Toxins, 
for example, botulinum toxin, produced by the bacterium Clostridium botulinum, lethal at doses of 1 nanogram slash kg. Figure 17, the arrow poison frog of South America. Credit, Corbus. Figure 19, the marine organisms Palithoa. Credit, Corbus. Table 6, Types of Biological Warfare Agents. Figure 23, 1 castor bean seed can kill a child, 8 can kill an adult. Credit, Peter Arnold, Weaponized Anthrax. Chapter Outline Biological Weapons Programs Unit 731, Japan. The world's first biological warfare compound, World War II. Put on down, Great Britain. Chemical, and later biological, weapons facility constructed in response to Germany's chlorine attack in World War I. Chapter Outline Biological Weapons Programs, Count. Camp Dietrich, USA. Site of World War II cloud chamber experiments on both test animals and human volunteers that demonstrated the viability of biological bombs to spread disease. BioPreparat, Soviet Union. A massive effort that encompassed over 40 research and production facilities across the country and led to a deadly outbreak of anthrax following an accidental release of B. anthracis. Table 7, Timeline of Bioterror Events. Figure 28A, Growing Microbes in the Lab Takes Days. I like that guy's hair. Credit, courtesy of Julie Millard. Figure 28B, New Microbe Con. Tests Include Handheld Devices Like This. Enhance. Credit, courtesy, Tetracore Incorporated. Cunt. The robot doesn't know what the abbreviation for continued means. All right, welcome back to the BioSci War message in the anthrax. And uh, if you weren't watching that and you're listening, there were some slides and the robot there was reading the best that it could, um, quite honestly. Uh, and so there's pictures that go along and some of those pictures were more interesting than just the voice alone and uh, giving the proper credits there as well. Thank you. And uh, of course, me back in the first episode of the BioSci War, and looking back at all those many weeks ago, I can claim that I've gotten much better at reading out loud online, and I sometimes apologize for my more monotony, dull voice. But it was an interesting point to make that they were looking back with that project within, for a new American century at using biological agents uh, to shape political opinion, basically. And that was the point that we were trying to make there with that. A uh, little deep dive into the Global Strategic Trends 2040 document. That's also interesting and definitely does tie into the overall bio war. I do believe that the people that are working uh, along, you know, like with Klaus Schwab, the inclu inclusive capitalist gang, the characters that we brought up earlier in the episode, uh, if we can pull up uh, the bio war here in the brain model, we can find... A few of the connections that I've been making more recently so that you can dive into that information and make a nice connection to the information rather than just being vague, 
you know, things that Tyler is rambling on about, you know, with his monotoneness. Um, David Gergen and his links into the World Economic Forum and uh, the Bilderberg Group and Klaus, as well as Operation Dark Winter and uh, his organization of being affiliated with other organizations that were involved in Event 201. And that kind of information is interesting to know when you link together their plans to also use biological weapons to shape uh, a public opinion and to shape the overall global uh, scene. So it's, a, it's not too far of a stretch to make there. Now, again, from the BioSci War, this little red dot here, you can click that and you'll get the main entry point into the BioSci War from the brain. And that, along with, like I said, the articles and show notes over at tylerbloyer.com, that we link together in the actual show itself. So if you look at like last week, it takes me a day or so to fill it out completely, but it ends up looking like a lot more resourceful and packed piece that you can reach and look at while you're listening, while you're referencing, while you're looking back and sharing, and this brain model and all that is always available to you. Uh, TylerBlur.com slash brain will get you there and you can pull up in the bio war and look into people like Car Carl Duesenberg, um, David Gergen, Francis Boyle, Peter Dazak, IG Farben, and we'll be covering some of these connections later today if we have time, and definitely in the next episode, going into the more of the IG Farben, Bayer cartel, how Bayer has links and interesting ties into anthrax and has uh, even antidotes. And as we've studied so far here in the BioSci War, is that whenever you see that a company might have an antidote, that there definitely could be then military ties into a particular strain. Let's say that Bayer has uh, ties into the AIM strain of anthrax, having antidotes and medicine for that. Well, as we've learned, like usually when they plan to release or to use bioweapons, they have the offensive and defensive. So you have the antidote, you have the way to give your troops, give your people a head start or a chance in the defense against an attack using these sort of weapons. And then also, uh, you know, you'll have the offensive. So if they, it's an interesting connection to know that Bayer might have connections into um, working on medications and uh, treatments for bioterrorism with anthrax and uh, Bayer, of course, being a German subsidiary, subsidiary of IG Farben, uh, the group there uh, from the time, uh, very influential in Nazi Germany. And we'll have more of that coming up soon in the BioSci War, very soon, in fact. And for now, what we're going to do is just speed ahead and read from an article over on the Unlimited Hangout. And this is a website, I think, mainly curated and hosted by Whitney Webb uh, over at Unlimited Hangout, also authors at The Last American Vagabond. And we've read articles from Whitney in the BioSci War before. We've also had clips that she's uh, shared as well, or that we shared here in the BioSci War from Whitney. And now we'll read an article uh, from the, the Unlimited Hangout called Engineering Contagion, UPMC, Coronathrax, and the Darkest Winter. Researchers at a BSL-3 lab tied to the organization, organizers of the 2001 Dark Winter Simulation, DARPA, and the post-9-11 Biodefense Industrial Complex are genetically modifying anthrax to express COVID-19 components according to Freedom of Information uh, Request 
documents, Freedom of Information Act requests documents, or whatever that stands for. Uh, welcome to those that are watching live. Appreciate you in the comments. I don't really have a way to comment directly back to you, but I'm seeing your comments. I see uh, Mega Bente says, your mention of op vegetarian makes me consider the recent meat packing outbreaks in a new light. In Canada, there is plans to have a vaccination center at the main meat packing plants affected. That is a very interesting connection. Yeah, we'll have to draw more into those. Uh, Project Vegetarian, I think that was coming out of World War II after uh, uh, being obliterated by mustard gas. I believe the Brits were looking for a way to go on the offensive with anthrax bombs of some sort. And in Operation Vegetarian, they planned to wipe out a lot of the livestock in Germany, apparently. So that's pretty interesting. Probably anthrax created out of Porton Down, which we've been learning about more here in the bio war. But for now, reading ahead with Whitney Webb's article from September 28th of 2020. Originally published at The Last American Vagabond. Oh, okay, so this article was originally published at, at The Last American Vagabond. So we'll link up both of those articles in the chat because this one's a little bit nicer on the eyes with the dark uh, background. I'll read this one for me. Reading this long and staring at the screen becomes a little bit intense on the voice and on the eyes <laughs> with these bright lights in my face. Uh, but let's go ahead and just drop me out of the way and we'll read on here. Soon after having been fired from his post as Secretary of the Treasury in December 2002, after a policy clash with the President Paul O'Neill, became a trustee of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, despite having uh, just worked under and clashed with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. It wasn't until O'Neill began answering to UPMC CEO Jeffrey Romoff as a member of the center board uh, he chose to publicly denounce a superior as, quote, evil. He, quote, he wants to destroy competition. He wants to be the only gain in town, unquote, O'Neill would later state of Ramoff. After that, quote, after 18 months, I quit the UPMC board in disgust, unquote, due to Ramoff's, quote, absolute control, unquote, over the board's actions. O'Neill subsequently noted that UPMC, quote, Board members who have wealth of hundreds of millions of dollars are not willing to take this guy on, unquote. When pressed with a local reporter, O'Neill further elaborated that he had be been told by other board members that they were, quote, afraid, unquote, of Romoff because Romoff might, quote, harm them in some way, unquote. O'Neill's criticisms of Romoff are hardly an outlier. As a local community activist and even a state attorney general, have noted that UPMC's board let Ramoff do as he pleases. Jeffrey Ramoff has ruled UPMC with an iron fist since his predecessor, Thomas Dieter, had a heart attack in 1992. As a result of the center's massive wealth of or sorry, as a result, the center's massive wealth accumulation has first spurred his magic touch for receiving National Institutes of Health grants. Dieter was able to use the financial power afforded to him to consolidate control over enough of the University of Pittsburgh to create his, quote, own personal fiefdom, unquote, which is now the standalone corporation known as UPMC. 
Not long after Ramoff took over the center's reins, he made his intentions clear to faculty and staff, stating at one 1995 UPMC meeting that his, quote, vision, unquote, for the future of American healthcare was, quote, the controversy, uh, the conversion of healthcare from social good to a commodity, unquote. Motivated by profit above all else, Ramoff aggressively expanded UPMC, gobbing up community hospitals, surgery centers, and privacy, private practices to create a, quote, health care network, unquote, that was expanded throughout much of Pennsylvania and even abroad to other countries, including China. Under Ramoff, UPMC has also expanded into the health insurance business, with 40% of the medical claims it pays out going straight back into places of care that are owned by UPMC's meaning of essentially paying itself. In addition, since UPMC is officially a charitable nonprofit corporation, it is exempt from property tax and has special access to the tax-exempt municipal bond market. UPMC can also solicit tax-deductible grants from private individuals and organizations, as well as governments. These grants totaled over $1 billion between 2005 and 2017. Despite these perks being officially justified because the UPMC's, quote, charitable institution, unquote, status of the UPMC board, with Ramoff at the top, have seen their own multi-million dollar per year salaries continue to climb, perhaps this perk also comes with UPMC being a nonprofit corporation, as there are no stakeholders to whom Ramoff and the board must explain their increasingly exorbitant salaries. For instance, Ramoff made $8.97 million last year at U as UPMC's CEO, a marked increase of the $6.2 million he had raked in the prior year. UPMC's financial chicanery is so out of control that even Pennsylvania's Attorney General has taken action against it, suing UPMC in February 2019 for violations of the state's charity laws based on their, quote, unjust enrichment, unquote, and engaging in unfair, unquote, unfair, fraudulent, or deceptive acts or practices, unquote. Though UPMC decided to settle out of court, the center and Ramoff came out of the affair relatively unscathed. Now, thanks to the crisis caused by the COVID-19, UPMC is once again on the path toward growing even larger and more powerful in pursuit of Ramoff's ultimate goal, which is in his own words to make UPMC the, quote, Amazon of healthcare, unquote. In his Installment of the Last American Vagabond series, Engineering Contagion, oh, sorry, in this fourth installment of the Last American Vagabond series, Engineering Contagion, Amerithrax, Coronavirus, and the Rise of the Biotech Industrial Complex, the, quote, non-profit, unquote, healthcare behemoth that is UPMC is squarely placed at the intersection of post-9-11, quote, biodefense, unquote, public-private partnership corporation, corporate-funded act academics who shape public policy on behalf of their private sector beneficiaries and risky research on dangerous dangerous pathogens that threaten to unleash the very quote bioterror unquote that these institutions claim to guard against in this section the odd trajectory trajectory of upmc's covid-19 vaccine efforts reading from the article Originally posted on the, mass, uh, the Last of American Vagabond 
by Whitney Webb. In January 2020, when much of the world remained blissfully unaware of the coming global pandemic, UPMC was already at work developing a vaccine to protect against the novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19, known as SARS-CoV-2. That month, before the state of Pennsylvania had a single case of COVID-19, UPMC formed a, quote, coronavirus task force, unquote, which was initially focused on lobbying the Center for Disease Control and Prevention to obtain samples of live SARS-CoV-2 for research purposes. That research was to be conducted at the Biosafety Level 3 BSL-3 Regional Biocontainment Laboratory, the RBL, housed within UPMC Center for Vaccine Research. A day after the director of UPMC's Center for Vaccine Research, W. Paul Duprix, revealed UPMC's efforts to access the SARS-CoV-2 virus, he announced that the virus contained an estimated 50 to 60 million coronavirus particles. We're already en route to the university. At the time, UPMC was one of the only handful of institutions on the CDC shortlist to receive live SARS-CoV-2 samples. UPMC later stated that it began work on a vaccine for COVID-19 on January 21st, weeks before the February 14th announcement that the virus was on its way to the university. That original vaccine candidate used the published genetic sequence of SARS-CoV-2 released in early January 2020 by Chinese researchers to synthetically produce SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins that would be transported into cells by an adrenal adenoviral vector, which is commonly used in a variety of vaccines. The vaccine candidate was nicknamed Pitcovac, short for Pittsburgh Coronavirus Vaccine. A little over a month after the live SARS-CoV-2 samples were received by UPMC's Center for Vaccine Research, UPMC received a $5 million grant from the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, CEPI, an international organization in 2017 by the governments of Norway and India, along with the World Economic Forum and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The grant was officially awarded to, quote, an international academic industrial partnership, unquote, that the Center for Vaccine Research and had recently formed with the Institut Pasteur in France and Austrian vaccine ma- manufacturer Themis. Soon after, in May, Themis was acquired by a vaccine giant Merck, which was, uh, sorry, which began recruiting volunteers for human trials earlier this month on September 11th. Merck has incredibly close ties with UPMC, particularly its commercial commercialization arm known as UPMC Enterprises. <coughs> Merck being a German company and also uh, and it has an American branch of that company as well. And we'll be connecting that back in later, as I'm sure Whitney will do for us here as well. The CEPI grant seems to have drastically altered the Center for Vaccine Research interest in the original adin uh, let me just slow down and say this adenovirus i guess adenovirus vector vaccine candidate pitcovac as the cepi grant was specifically aimed at funding a different vaccine candidate that that instead uses the measles virus as a vector the measles virus and the genetic manipulation of measles for the use in the measles vaccine is notably the principal research interest 
and expertise of the Center for Vaccine Research Director Paul Dupree. The measles-based vaccine candidate can be described as a, quote, modified genetically altered measles virus that delivers virus bits of the new coronavirus into the body to prevent COVID-19, unquote, as well as an, quote, attenuated genetically modified yet weakened measles virus as a vector, which to introduce genetic material from SARS-CoV-2 to the immune system, unquote, the combination of this weakened measles virus and SARS-CoV-2 per Dupree will produce a, quote, more benign version of the coronavirus that will acquaint a person's immune system, unquote, with SARS-CoV-2. No vaccine using this modality has ever been licensed. On April 2nd, less than a week after CEPI awarded had, uh, after the CEPI award had been announced, the UPMC researcher who had developed the original vaccine candidate using the more traditional adenovirus vector approach published a study in EB e-biomedicine, a publication of the medical journal Lancet, that reported promising results of their vaccine candidate in animal studies. The news that a U.S. institution was among the first in the world to develop a COVID-19 vaccine candidate was, with promising results from an animal study was heavily amplified by mainstream U.S. media outlets. Those who report noting that UPMC was requesting government permissions to quickly move on to human trials. So just parenthetically speaking here, there's a hyperlinks throughout the article that you can use to verify like when she says the adenovirus approach published a study that's hyperlinked and you can go click and see that study there. And so Whitney does apparently know how to use parentheses so that's that's a plus uh, moving on with the article the original vaccine candidate however was mysteriously dropped from subsequent reports and statements from upmc regarding its covid 19 vaccine efforts indeed in recent months dupree's statements on the center's covid 19 vaccine candidates no longer mention the once promising pit vac at all instead new reports citing dupree's claims that only UPMC vaccine candidates are the CEPI-funded measles vaccine candidate and another, the more mysterious vaccine candidate, whose nature has only been recently revealed by documents obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request, FOIA request. Equally odd is the recent media reports on the original vaccine candidates have stopped mentioning UPMC at all instead citing only Themis, its new owner Merck, and Francis and Francis Institute Pasteur, there are no reports indicating a breakup of the original quote academic industry partnership unquote that had received the CEPI grant. It seems that this is why what may have come to pass, as Dupree stated that the UPMC measles vector vaccine candidate had partnered with the Serum Institute of India for mass production, first for trials and then for public use, depending on how the vaccine advances through the regulatory process. In contrast, Themis Merck have stated that their vaccine is being produced in France. It remains unclear what the relation is between these two and apparently analogous vaccine candidates. 
through Dupree has been, or though Dupree has been relatively forthcoming about the nature of the first UPMC vaccine candidate, parenthetically, i.e., the CEPI-funded measles vector vaccine, he has been much more tight-lipped about its second vaccine candidate. In late August, he told the Pittsburgh Business Times that the second vaccine candidate, or sorry, the second vaccine candidate that UPMC was developing, quote, works by delivering genetic material coding for a viral protein instead of the entire weakened or killed virus as a standard in other vaccines, unquote. Yet Dupree, yet Dupree declined to state what vector will be used to deliver the genetic material into human cells. Hmm, we can only wonder. <laughs> Recent Freedom of Information Act requests revelations, nevertheless, have revealed that UPMC's second vaccine candidate involves genetically engineering a combination of SARS-CoV-2 and anthrax, a substance better known for its potential use as a bioweapon. So now we're finally getting to the heart of the matter here with the article uh, on coronathrax. So again, reading Engineering Contagion, UPMC, coronathrax, and the Darkest Winter. Um, this on the Unlimited Hangout, but it was originally posted on The Last American Vagabond, September 28th of 2020, and now to the section coronathrax. The recently obtained documents reveal that the BSL-3 lab that is part of UPMC's Center for Vaccine Research is conducting eyebrow-raising research involving combining SARS-CoV-2 with Bacillus anthraxis, the causative agent of anthrax infection. Per the documents, which are hyperlinked there, anthrax is being genetically engineered by a researcher whose name was redacted in the release so that it will express the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, which is the part of the coronavirus that allows it to gain access into human cells. The researchers assert that, quote, the genetic engineered anthrax SARS-CoV-2 hybrid can be used to a host strain to make SARS-CoV-2 recombinant S protein vaccine, unquote. And the creation of said vaccine is the only stated purpose of the research project. <laughs> the documents were produced by the University of Pittsburgh Institutional Biosafety Committee, IBC, which had an emergency meeting on June 22nd of this year to, quote, discuss uh, specific protocols involving research with the coronavirus, unquote, which included a vote on the aforementioned proposal. Edward Hammond, the former director of the Sunshine Project, an organization that opposed chemical and biological weapons and the expansion of, quote, dual-use, unquote, biodefense, bioweapons research, obtained the documents. Other Freedom of Information Act documents recently obtained by Hammond have revealed an, quote, explosion, quote, of risky COVID-19-related research. At other academic institutions, such as the University of North Carolina, which has already had bio, or sorry, had lab accidents involving genetic engineered variants of SARS-CoV-2. Hammond told The Last American Vagabond that the experiment, which he dubs, quote, coronathrax, unquote, is, quote, emblematic of the pointless research ex, um, excesses that often characterize the response of scientists to the federal government throwing billions of dollars at health crisis, unquote, Hammond added. Quote, while I don't think that coronathrax would be infectious, it falls into the category of pointless and crazy. 
The biggest immediate risk of it all, this activity, is that the researcher will deliberately or inadvertently create modified forms of SARS-CoV-2 that is more difficult to treat or more deadly, and the virus will escape the lab. It only takes a stray droplet." Unquote. Jonathan Latham, a virologist who previously taught at the University of Wisconsin and who is the current editor of the Independent Science News, agreed with Hammond that the coronathrax experiments is odd and said that he was, quote, concerned here specifically about the research process and the risk of these specific experiments at Pittsburgh, unquote. In an interview with The Last American Vagabond, Latham asserted that it was, quote, unusual by historical standards when combing the two highly pathogen uh, pathogenic organisms in a single experiment, unquote. He did note, however, that such studies for s purposes of vaccine research have become more common in recent years and as have made clear in a 2012 study. Few experiments have been conducted that specifically utilize anthrax in this way. Since 2000, the studies that have examined the use of genetically modified anthrax as a potential vaccine vector have been affiliated with Harvard University. One of these studies was the use of anthrax as a vector in a potential HIV vaccine and was jointly conducted by 2000, in 2000 by Harvard researchers and the vaccine company Avant Immunotherapeutics, now part of Celdex. Celdex. Despite reporting positive preliminary results in their experiments, Avant and Celdex did not find further did not fund further experiments into a vaccine that used this anthrax-based modality, and it does not currently market or have any such vaccines in its product pipeline. These this suggests that, for whatever reason, the company did not see much value in the vaccine, despite preliminary studies with Harvard claiming that the methodology was safe and effective. The Harvard researchers involved in that late 2000 study, however, continued to investigate the possibility of anthrax-based HIV vaccine in 2003, 2004, and 2005, though without corporate sponsorship. Related yet different researchers has explored the use of quote disarmed anthrax or disarmed unquote anthrax components as an adjuvant adjuvant in the vaccines as a basis for enzyme linked immunospot assays now i don't know much about vaccines or i don't know i'm not an i'm not an anti-vaxxer i'm not a pro-vaxxer i'm just pro information i'm pro looking into the details and seeing if it's necessary if there's a vaccine that seems like it would be a good idea and that it's necessary and would be effective at that time and the research checks out and the studies seem to make sense and they all check out and it would be something in front of me that I needed to, to, to do, I would go ahead and do that. So I'm not, I'm pro-science. I am pro-critical um, thinking. I am pro-looking into the information and deciding for yourself. I'm also pro-free will. I'm pro-sovereignty. I'm pro uh uh, so sovereign uh, control over my body and that I own this body and can decide you know, what is going to go into it. And as someone who's in charge of other 
human beings who don't have the ability to sit and do this kind of research, and I have to make decisions for them, I also have a lot of responsibility to look into these things for myself, despite, you know, the common excuses that people will say, well, I don't have time for that, and how could I, how could I possibly look into all that? That's, I, I don't, I'm not a doctor, I can't decide for myself. Well, look at this crazy shit that they're doing, um, messing around with measles-based adjuvants and and, uh, and anthrax components as adjuvants and vaccines. Like, this is complete insanity. And if you can't see that, like, it's because we're so far into the insanity crazy land that we are, like, it's to the forest for the trees thing. Like, we don't know. We can't see it. Like, we're on the map. We're on the globe. What's going on here? Is flat Earth? Globe Earth? <laughs> Now, I'm not like pro flat earth either. So a lot of people, a lot of YouTube uh, little labels underneath my video like to say or make claims about, you know, things that I didn't even talk about. So got to be careful what you say, I guess. I mean, if you're really concerned about that, I'm not. I don't want to like throw away the things that I've worked on on various platforms. But at the same time, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to read the documents. We've got the documents here and we're going to read them into the record and we're going to spend the time to read the documents as you can see i don't i don't i'm not afraid to spend a little extra time going long form to read a full document into the record that you may not uh, have the time or ambition to go read and you know i've shown some techniques about having a robot read it to you if you're the if you're that type of person that i just described uh, the type that doesn't like to sit and read full articles or have a method for consuming them. So partially what I'm doing in the BioSci War is helping to bring that information in front of you, make it easily digestible, streamlined audio version of this. You can listen while you're mowing the lawn, right? So instead of me rambling on, uh, we'll get back to the article here. Let's go. And I'm not, I wasn't rambling, you know, I, I tend to say that, but I was making some good points there actually. Now let me continue reading. The aforementioned Harvard researcher, patented their methodology of using anthrax in this way for the production of a vaccine in 2002. This means that the anthrax-based, quote, vaccine, unquote, currently being developed by UPMC's Center for Vaccine Research would have to develop a new method that utilizes anthrax in much the same way so as not to infringe on the patent, which is, unli which is unlikely. The other alternative is that UPMC would pay the patent holders for their use of their methodology. If they want if they want to commercialize it in a vaccine, yet given UPMC's business model in general, as well as that of UPMC's Center for Vaccine Research specifically, this also seems unlikely. Also odd is what sort of incentive UPMC's Center for Vaccine Research possesses for the coronathrask experiments. There are currently over 100 vaccine candidates that use existing and tested vaccine platforms in pursuit of COVID-19 vaccine, uh, a fact Dupree himself has acknowledged. As Hammond told The Last American Vagabond, quote, it is perfectly obvious that there are numerous existing vaccine platforms for COVID-19 and that some of them will sooner, more than likely, later succeed. There is no serious need for some sort of quite strange bacterium platform, much less one that happens to be anthrax. It's completely unnecessary and frankly bizarre, unquote. All right, so now we're moving into the section in this article called The Crown Jewel of, Biotech Indus of the Biotech Industrial Complex. 
The Corona Thrax experiment is being conducted at the Center for Vaccine Research Regional Biocontainment Laboratory, the RBL, where the center's work with pathogenic agents such as anthrax and SARS-CoV-2 is conducted. The creation of UPMC's RBL was first announced in 2003 when the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, the NAAID, then and currently led by Anthony Fauci, stated it would fund the laboratory's construction with an $18 million grant. It was originally planned to be mainly, quote, dedicated to research on agents that cause naturally occurring and emerging infections, as well as potential agents of bioterrorism, unquote. The plan to create the lab was part of the U.S. government's decision to dramatically ramp up, quote, biodefense, unquote, research in the wake of the 2001 anthrax attacks. The lab was also intended to work on, quote, developing a vaccine program focused on basic and transnational research, unquote, related to viruses of a pandemic potential that are at risk of being, quote, weaponized, unquote, including SARS. After the creation of the lab was initially announced, the project expanded, eventually becoming UPMC's Center for Vaccine Research, which was launched in 2007. The Center for Vaccine Research was second such institute to be was the second such institute to be officially added to the NA, NIAID's quote biodefense unquote RBL network. The opening of both this lab and UPMC Center for Vaccine Research was made reality thanks to the efforts of the main authors of the June 2001 Dark Winter Bioterror Simulation, a controversial exercise that eerily predicted the 2001 anthrax attacks, as well as the initial yet bogus narrative that Iraq and Islamic extremist terror groups were responsible for those attacks. However, the anthrax used in the attacks was later revealed to be of U.S. military origin. As noted in Part 1 of the series, participants in the Dark Winter exercise had foreknowledge of the anthrax attacks, and others were involved in subsequent investiga- quote, investigation, unquote, which made many experts and former FBI investigators describe as cover-up. Dark Winter was largely written by Tara O'Toole, Thomas Inglesby, and Randall Larson, all three who played parts and in, in, played integral roles in the founding or operations of UPMC's Center for Biosecurity, along with O'Toole's mentors. D.A. Henderson, UPMC's Center for Disease Biosecurity, was launched in December in September 2003, just days before NIAID announced it would fund the RBL Lab. That would later become UPMC's Center for Vaccine Research. Notably, just days after the attacks of, on September 11, 2001, O'Toole, Inglesby, and Larson personally briefed B- Vice President Cheney on Dark Winter. Simultaneously, Cheney's office at the White House began talking, taking the antibiotic ciproflaxin to prevent anthrax infection. In the weeks between the briefing and the 2001 anthrax attacks, Dark Winter participants and several associates of Cheney, namely members of the Project for the New American Century like Donald Kagan and Richard Pearl, asserted that the bioterror attack involving anthrax would soon take place. In the aftermath of the 2001 anthrax attacks, 
Henderson was tapped by the federal government to vastly increase the number of biodefense labs, both to detect suspect pathogens like anthrax to conduct biodefense research, such as developing vaccines with the announcements of UPMC's RBL being part of the launch of the O'Toole-led Center for Biosecurity at UPMC, where Henderson was named senior advisor. In 2003, the Center for Biosecurity was set up. UPMC partially at the request of Jeffrey Ramoff to be, quote, the country's only think tank and research center devoted to the prevention and handling of biological attacks, unquote. With UPMC's Center for Vaccine Research being the hub of the new, quote, biodefense research, unquote, lab network, Henderson was settling up and managing at the time. That network remains technically managed by the Fauci-led NIAID. Also noteworthy, noteworthy is that the Center for Vaccine Research Director from its opening in 2007 until 2016 was Donald Burke. Burke was the former biodefense researcher for the U.S. military at Fort Detrick and other installations and, immediately prior to heading the UPMC Center, was a program director for the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where he worked closely with O'Toole and Inglesby. At the time of the 2003 announcement, Regarding the creation of what would become UPMC's Center for Vaccine Research, Tara O'Toole stated, quote, This new laboratory will enable University of Pittsburgh medical researchers to delve further into possible treatments and to develop vaccines against diseases that result from the bioterrorist attacks or from natural outbreaks, unquote. A few years later, after she was nominated to a top post at the Department of Homeland Security, O'Toole was slammed by experts over her excessive lobbying, quote, for a massive biodefense expansion and relaxation of provisions for safety and security, unquote. Rutgers microbiologist Richard Ebright remarked at the time that, quote, she makes Dr. Strangelove look sane, unquote. It was also noted in hearing that O'Toole had worked as a lobbyist for several life sciences companies specializing in the sale of biodefense products in the U.S. government, in the U.S. government, including Emergent Biosolutions, a very controversial company and a key suspect in the 2001 anthrax attacks. The history of the Center for Vaccine Research, RBL, particularly the network of people who prompted the lab's creation, raises concern about the nature of coronathrax experiments currently being conducted within the facility. This is especially true because the research conducted the the researcher conducting the experiments appears to be ignorant about the key parts of the research he or she is conducting. For instance, the Freedom of Information Act request redacted researcher incorrectly states that the recombinant virus proposed for use in the study is incapable of infecting human cells. While the IBC members note that this is not the case, in addition, an unnamed researcher falsely claimed that one of the viral vectors for use in the investigator study did not express CAS9, a protein associated with CRISPR gene editing, and gRNA, guide RNA also used in CRISPR, and was unaware that handling those agents requires an enhanced BSL-2 lab, BSL-2+, as opposed to the typical BSL-2 lab. Apparently, such errors among researchers involved in the COVID-19 research at UPMC is not an anomaly. During another UPMC's IBMC meeting, included, included in the Freedom of Information Act release, 
the IBC noted the following about a separate research proposal. The investigators noted in response to changing changes requested by the IBC pre-reviewers, the investigators indicated that RNA from SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2 infected cells will be obtained from BEI resources. Genomic RNA isolated from cells infected with SARS-CoV-1 is regulated as a select agent by the Federal Select Agent Programs, and neither the university nor this investigator are registered of for possession and use of these materials, emphasis added. SARS-CoV-1. The investigator must not obtain SARS-CoV-1 genomic RNA without prior consulting, consult, consultation with the university RO, AROs for select agents. Unquote. This part is particularly caught the this part in particular caught the attention of Jonathan Latham, who noted that it was odd that quote a university researcher is trying to obtain approval for an experiment which no one at the university is allowed to do unquote. Latham added in an interview that quote apparently this applicant is totally ignorant of the regulatory environment and extension the risks of SARS-CoV and by extension the risks of SARS-CoV SARS-CoV being the original variant before it was gain of function to, to SARS-CoV-2 which is a highly infectious virus whose escape from a lab has already led to at least one death I'm just getting an idea here for how much further have okay so reading on in the article we are going to skip down a little bit to paul dupree's darpa funded research and gain of function enthusiast paul dupree is a former chief scientist for johnson and johnson whose subsequent foray into academia was largely funded with research grants from the nih and the pentagon's defense advanced research agency DARPA, much of Dupree's research has focused on recombinant, i.e. genetically engineered viruses or viral evolution. In terms of his research funded by DARPA, Dupree was mostly, most closely associated with DARPA's, quote, prophecy program, the creation of which has overseen, sorry, was overseen by Michael Callahan, Callahan's suspect past and his ties to the origin of the current COVID-19 crisis in Wuhan, China, were the suspect were the subject of recent Unlimited Hangouts article by uh, Rual Diego. In that article, Diego notes that the now <clears throat> defunct prophecy program had quote, sought to translate the vaccine and drug development enterprise from observational and reactive to predictive and preemptive through algorithmic programming techniques, and that the program further, quote, proposed that viral mutation and outbreaks could be predicated in advance to more rapidly counter the unknown disease with preemptive drug and vaccine developments, unquote. By the indication Prophecy was DARPA's first major foray into, quote, predictive, unquote, AI-powered healthcare, which has expanded considerably. In the years since, it was also in involved a component which Dupree was particularly involved in advancing, whereby the predictive viral uh, algorithms would be validated and, quote, validated and tested by using multiple selective pressures on at least three closely related virus strains in an experimental setting. 
Such experiments, like the study by Dupree, involved the genetic engineering of three viral pathogen strains and then seeing which would become the most transmissible and virulent in an animal host. Such studies are often referred to as gain-of-function research and are incredibly controversial given that they create pathogens that are more virulent and transmissible than they otherwise, otherwise would be. It is also note, worth noting that UPMC, before deep Dupree joined the center, had also received millions in funding from DARPA's prophecy program, quote, to develop in vitro and computational models for predicting viral evolution under select selection pressure from multiple evolutionary stressors, unquote. Dupree has also been involved in conducting research for DARPA's current interfering and co-evolving prevention and therapy intercept program, a successor to prophecy that, quote, aims to harness viral evolution to create a novel adaptive form of medical countermeasures, therapeutic interfering particles, TIPs, that outcompetes viruses in the body to prevent or treat infection, unquote. TIPs are genetically engineered viruses that with defective genomes, or that viruses with defective genomes that theoretically compete with real viruses for viral components in the human body, but, quote, evolve with, unquote, viruses that are meant to protect the body against and are, quote, susceptible to mutation over time, unquote. The goal of the Intercept program is to use TIPs as, quote, therapeutics, unquote, to have them injected into the body to, quote, preemptively, unquote, protect against the virus from which the particular TIP was developed. It is, note, it is worth noting that while DARPA frames much of its gene editing research, in, parenthetically, including its, quote, genetic extinction, unquote, technology research, in parentheses, as being aimed at promoting either human or environmental health, it is also openly admitted that these same technologies are of interest to DARPA for their, quote, for their ability to, quote, subvert, unquote, the genes of human adversaries of the U.S. military via, quote, genetic weapons, unquote. Those would be very interesting uh, resources to go chase down, right? But we're going to stick to this article because we're captivated by what's being discussed here. And we're cruising through the Last American Vagabond article here from Whitney Webb um, on engineering contagion, the uh, coronathrax anthrax connections. Here we're going to get into clade X, it looks like. And right now we're currently talking about DARPA's interest in uh, extinction technologies uh, gene-driven genetic weapons. Dupree led an intercept study published in February of this year in which he and his co-authors explored how to recreate a synthetic tip of the Nipah virus, a deadly virus with a fatality rate of over 70%. In that study, they used wild and genetically engineered strains of Nipah virus, notably the Clade X pandemic simulation, which will be discussed in detail in the next installment of the series, involved a genetically engineered combination of the Nipah virus and a para-influenza disease. By the way, I don't know if I'm saying that right, N-I-P-A-H. I'm just going to say Nipah. Clade X took place in 2018 and was led by much of the same team that was responsible for the 2001 Dark Winter bioterrorism simulation, including former FDA Commissioner Margaret Hamburg and Tara O'Toole and Thomas Inglesby of the UPMC Center for Biosecurity. Another notable participant at Clade X was Julie Gerdenberding, 
former CDC director and current executive vice president at Merck, which has close ties to UPMC, as well as for Center for Biosecurity's failed, quote, 21st century biodefense, unquote, project. See, I told you Merck would come back up into the article here. A few months after publishing the study funded by DARPA's Intercept program, Dupree co-authored another study on the use of synthetic, quote, nanobodies, unquote, i.e. bioengineered synthetic nanoparticles acting as antibodies that was published in August. This effort mirrors other DARPA, quote, health-focused, unquote, projects. That study was funded by the University of Pittsburgh, the NIH, and Israel's Ministry of Science and Technology. In addition to the ties to DARPA's programs involving the genetic engineering of viral pathogens, Dupree is leading advocate for controversial gain-of-function research and was appointed to the director of UPMC Center for Vaccine Research less than three months after the federal moratorium on gain-of-function research ended. In October of 2014, Five days after the moratorium was first imposed, Dupree gave a talk to the National Security Advisory Board for Biosecurity entitled, quote, gain-of-function studies, their history, their utility, and what they can tell us, unquote. In the talk, he asserted that, quote, cross-species infection studies have already helped to improve surveillance in the field, have shed new light on basic influenza virus biology, and could assist in growing vaccine viruses better, unquote. He argues against the recently imposed moratorium. In 2014, Dupree also wrote in a paper published in Nature that, quote, gain-of-function approaches are absolutely essential in infectious disease research. Although alternative approaches can be very useful, these can never replace gain-of-function experiments, unquote. He added that in his view, there were only two reasons for gain-of-function research, the first being to, quote, improve surveillance or to develop therapeutics, and, end quote, and the second being merely to learn, quote, interesting biology, unquote. Yeah, not not to do any sort of like biological weapons research or researching cancer or the vaccines to do with them or how to infect whole populations of the whole planet with particular disease agents. No, that's it's only to have interesting biology and improve surveillance or to develop to develop our therapeutics, which we know they do develop therapeutics. We know they know how to generate a lot of income uh, based on their research. Uh, but then what about the other side of that? What about when the whole planet becomes infected with these uh, gain-of-function things that you've been studying? Is it worth it then? Uh, well, to them it is because they turn around and then sell you the products on the other side, on their other, in the other side of their hand with all the businesses that they've developed around the bioweapon that they released. In that same paper, he also argued that, quote, genetic engineering that is intended to likely be endowed a low uh, pathogenicity low transmissibility agent with either enhanced pathogenicity or enhanced transmissibility may be appropriate if the benefits are substantial, unquote. He also suggested that in 2014 paper that it, quote, might, unquote, be necessary to, quote, enhance pathogenicity of coronaviruses in order to develop a valid animal model for coronaviruses, unquote. Years later, during the current coronavirus crisis, Dupree and others officials from the UPMC Center for Vaccine Research co-developed a COVID-19 research and development, quote, blueprint, unquote, for the UN's World Health Organization. In addition, Dupree works for DARPA's prophecy program involving gain-of-function research, as noted above, and the creator of that program, Michael Callahan, 
former head of DARPA's Biodefense Therapeutics Initiative, is also a proponent of gain of function who believes that such risky research is uh, inseparable from, quote, the research and development enterprise in the life sciences for biotechnology. Dupree is also a founding member of the Science, Scientists for Science, a group of researchers, most of whom are involved in gain-of-function research, who oppose the gain-of-function moratorium and were confident that biomedical research on potentially dangerous pathogens can be performed safely and is essentially a comprehensive understanding for microbial disease pathogenesis, prevention, and treatment, unquote. Another of the group's founding members is Yoshiro Kawaka, whose controversial gain-of-function experiments that made pathogenic viruses more deadly have garnered considerable media attention. They're missing a space there. When the moratorium on gain-of-function was lifted in December of 2017, Dubrique called it a, quote, sign of progress, unquote, adding that, quote, on a personal level, I'm really pleased that the NIH-funded scientists conducting gain-of-function research get some clarity, unquote. As previously mentioned, he became the Center for Vaccine Researcher, Researchers Director less than three months later in March 2008. The Darkest Winter Looms, the final section here from the article from The Last American Vagabond, and I'm reading the version here on Whitney's site, The Unlimited Hangout. Uh, from Whitney Webb, September 28th of 2020. Uh, the, the Darkest Winter Looms. After a cursory examination of the background of UPMC, its regional biocontainment laboratory, and the man directing its Center for Vaccine Research, the question about the nature of the coronathrax experiments becomes, is this yet another ill-advised experiment by a lab led by gain-of-function enthusiasts and fueled by a feeding frenzy over the billions of, bio, of billions of dollars thrown by the government and other entities into COVID-19 research? Or is there perhaps a more nefarious motive to genetically engineer something as bizarre as coronathrax? While this latter question may appear conspiratorial, it is worth pointing out that the institutions most likely to have been the sources of the anthrax used in 2001 anthrax attacks, attacks were conducting gain-of-function research on anthrax funded by the Pentagon and the CIA that was justified as, quote, improving, unquote, the controversial anthrax vaccine known as biothrax. For instance, uh, Battelle uh, Memorial Institute, a Pentagon and CIA contractor, began genetically engineering a more virulent form of anthrax, quote, to see if the anthrax vaccine the United States intends to supply its armed forces is effective against that strain, unquote. While these experiments were going on, the embattled manufacturer of the anthrax vaccine, known as the Emergent Biosolutions, entered into a contract with Battelle that gave Battelle, quote, immediate exposure to the vaccine, unquote. It was using in connection with the genetically modified anthrax program. As noted in part two of this series, Bioport was set to lose its Pentagon contract for anthrax vaccine entirely in September of 2001, and the entirety of its anthrax vaccine business was rescued in 2001 anthrax attacks, which, was, which saw concerns over Bioport's corruption and the horrendous safety track record replaced with fervent demands for more of its anthrax vaccine. 
Furthermore, as noted in detail in Part 3 of this series, Patel was the most likely source of the anthrax used in the 2001 attacks. The ties between UPMC's Center for Disease Biosecurity Patel and Emergent Biosolutions will be discussed in the next installment of this series. What is also notable about the coronathrax experiments occurring at UPMC are the ties of UPMC's RBL and Center for Vaccine Research to another key component of the center's biodefense complex, the UPMC Center for Biosecurity. As previously mentioned, the people recruited to head this center at its founding in 2003 were intimately involved in the 2001 bioterror simulation Dark Winter, namely Tara O'Toole and Thomas Inglesby. While leading to UPMC's Center for Biosecurity, O'Toole and her successor Inglesby engaged in another notable bioterror simulation, including one that took place last year, Event 201, which eerily predicted the coronavirus crisis and began this year. Inglesby, who was also the director of the John Hopkins Center for Health and Security in addition to his post at UPMC, was the moderator at Event 201. Though Event 201 was garnered considerable scrutiny in recent months, another but less well-known exercise in 2018 that involved O'Toole and Inglesby examined how bioterror attacks involving a genetically engineered pathogen could trigger a continuity of government, COG, scenario, a government roadmap for the imposition of martial law in the United States. As other investigative series of mine have noted, there have recently been a myriad of intelligence agency simulations that predicted the imminent imposition of martial law in the United States following the 2020 election. It is also noticeable that George W. Bush's controversial and classified update to the continuation of government plans in 2007, known as Executive Directive 51, was directly inspired by Dark Winter. And Barack Obama's subsequent executive order on the continuation of government gave near complete control of American infrastructure to the Department of Homeland Security in such a situation. At the time Obama was issued, uh, Obama issued those executive orders. O'Toole was the DHS's undersecretary for the science and technology, and was influenced those and influenced those updates to the continuation of government plans. O'Toole is currently the executive vice president of the CIA's InQtel. <laughs> well, we heard about InQtel back in uh, getting ready for Human 2.0 and Total PSYOP Awareness. I believe we talked about it there. Uh, the simulations known as Claydex will be examined in greater detail in the next installment of this series, as will the numerous of other recent, quote, predictions from the U.S. government sources, controversial billionaires such as Bill Gates, and a web of individual ties, individual ties to UPMC, who have warned that the bioterror attack or related public health catastrophe is set to take place in the United States in the later half of 2020. As one high-ranking government official put it earlier this year, this alleged imminent event will result in, quote, the darkest winter in modern history. And that is the end of that tremendous, great article in that tremendous and great series, and we'll be sure to get through and link that in. We also have uh, up here to read, I had, well, I did have another article from The Last American Vagabond, and it was All Roads Lead to Dark Winter. This article here you can find on The Last American Vagabond and linked up in the show notes is from April 1st of 2020, and it's also a good like precursor to read, the, and we'll just read the first 
line says the leaders of the two controversial pandemic simulations that took place just months after the coronavirus coronavirus crisis event 201 and crimson contagion share a common history the 2001 bio warfare dark simulation dark winter <laughs> uh, simulation dark winter dark winter not only predicated the 2001 anthrax attacks but some of its participants had clear foreknowledge of these attacks so that article is also in there Again, we can meet, read more about Bruce Edward Ivins. Um, he was an American microbiologist and senior biodefense researcher who, quote, uh, suicided himself um, on Tylenol after being accused of being one of the main leakers of the anthrax in the anthrax attacks. You can find him and others linked up here in the BioSciWar brain. And we are going to jump into now the closing clip with Klaus and his good old buddy, David Gergen. And uh, these two guys are going to sit down and have an interesting conversation. If anything, it's interesting because the two are speaking together and because of all the things we just learned about David Gergen's friends over the people who uh, brought about darkest winter or the dark winter operation he was involved in the planning and organization of that and now here he is talking about the fourth industrial revolution with the good old great reset covid and the great reset author that's the book name of his book covid and the great reset author klaus 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 Schwab. we'll let him bring in the darkness to close out the episode Uh, if we can get that unmuted. Well, that you thank you. Come back, and we want to thank you not only for what you've done for this school, but what you've done for the world. You've you've devoted your life to making the world a better place. Something which goes to the heart of what the Kennedy School is all about. It's been striking to us as we've had the pleasure, and and, and this goes back to Dean uh, Dean Elwood. Um, that when you brought the Young Global Leaders Program here for executive education and the Schwab Fellows. But there are two countries in the world now in which the Young Global Leaders have emerged. Tell us just a bit about that in, in terms of the governance. Yes, um, actually this um, notion to integrate young leaders uh, <coughs> is part of the World Economic Forum since many years. And I have to say um, when I mention our names, like Mrs. Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin, and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. But um, what we are very proud of now is the young generation, like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, President of, Pres of uh, Argentina, and so on, that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was a at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I know that half of this cabinet or even more half of, uh, half of this cabinet are for our actually young global leaders of the world economy right. forum. And that's true in Argentina too. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. That's true in Argentina as well. It's true in Argentina and uh, it's true in France now. Mm -hmm. I'm here with the president, with a young global leader. But what is important oh, no. for me is those young global leaders have an opportunity to come here. Right. And we have established uh, a 
course, uh, now since several years. Uh, and my I computer think seems to be totally frozen. It has a tremendous impact because um, being here for a week uh, really creates a strong community. And we, in addition to the young global leaders, we have now there the global go. shapers in uh, 450 cities around the world. I just wonder, is there any global shaper here? Yeah, oh, yeah, you see, you Terrific. see global shapers oh. here. <laughs> oh, yes, just um, like when I was young boy in Germany. Um, what is astonishing is to see um, how those young people really have a different mindset. Um, and I have great admi uh, admiration because when I have a group of global shapers in the room and then ask them, are you thinking in global terms or in national terms? The majority would say in global terms. Mm. If I ask them what is more important for you, to make money or to serve society, more certainly 80% uh, would raise their hand and would say serving society. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm very optimistic about the future of the world because with the young generation, I think right. we can build what I would call a new renaissance, particularly using technology um, solving all the issues uh, moving forward. Let's talk a bit about uh, technology and its impact. You, you've written a book, which I would commend to all of you, called, it just came out a couple of years ago, The Fourth Industrial Revolution. It sold over a million copies around the world, over a million copies. Uh, and it is essentially, Klaus argues that there were three earlier revolutions, one late 18th century, or early part of the 19th century, then late 19th century, early 20th century, then the third one starting in the 1960s with the digital age, and now since the advent of the 21st century, a new, a new industrial revolution that's even more influential. Can you tell us, describe this revolution to us as you see it? Yes, uh, very often people would say, um, um, it's not really a revolution, it's a prolongation of uh, the computer age which came into being in the 80s, uh, the last century already. Mm -hmm. But it's much more. If, if we look at this revolution, it's not characterized by one technology. You have so many technologies. You have nanotechnology, brain um, research, you have, uh, I mean, you name it. In, in, in essence, in the long run, what is very essential is to see that this new revolution will lead to a fusion of our biological, our digital, and our material existence. Mm -hmm. And look at, for example, the Internet of Things and many other, let's say, uh, new um, uh, technologies. Um, say what is what is very important they do not just such another difference they do not just influence or improve what we are doing moving faster in the traffic or whatever it is but they have an impact on us they change us just look at how the internet has already changed or big data is now changing the behavior of people so um they affect our identity and when we look uh, for an explanation of uh, the problems we have now uh, um, in, in terms of uh, Brexit or whatever you take, 
Um, I think a lot has to do with the search of identity in a situation where you are confronted with a technology which most people do not always with a technological wave and changes which most people do not understand. And so now I am coming to a third characteristic of this revolution, the speed. Um, I wrote the book um, two and a half years ago, or actually just two years ago, and when I look at, at certain um, elements, I mentioned, for example, blockchain. Two years ago, I had to explain everybody what blockchain is. Mm -hmm. Today, every major bank has a research team to look how blockchain could impact mm -hmm. the business model. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at, um, let's say, self-driving cars, um, uh, two years ago, people assumed this will be reality somewhere around 2025. And now, even in Switzerland, you have um, the first self-driving bus in one of the small cities in Switzerland. And you have one of the cantons now in Switzerland, uh, Canton of Zug, who is in, which is introducing black st uh, uh, blockchain for all financial transactions, tax declarations, and so on. So the speed is enormous. Mm -hmm. And all those elements together, I think, create a revolution which affects us, which is not just a technological revolution. It's an economic, it's a political, and it's a social revolution. You, the book is fundamentally optimistic. You call yourself a pragmatic optimist in the book. There was one area where you seemed to be worried, and that was the question of jobs and inequality as it relates to jobs. You're worried about the women and jobs. And you pointed out that in 1990, the three biggest companies in Detroit had a market that had a cap value of $36 billion and had 1.2 uh, million employees. And two years ago, the top three companies in Silicon Valley have a market cap of over a trillion dollars on only one-tenth as many employees, just 37,000 employees, 137,000 employees. How do, we, how, do, how do we best address this? Because you, one hears it again and again, and it has entered into our politics, as you well know, not only in this country, but in Europe. We don't know, frankly, yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, we use words like we need upskilling, reskilling, yeah. but actually, um, let me address this issue from, from different angles. Um, first, um, I, if we look at the magnitude of, of this issue, um, I, I just take two, two figures. Um, in the US, as far as I know, more than 10 million people are driving vehicles. And more than 10 million people are working as cashiers uh, in, um, in mm. the distribution system, in retail. Uh, those jobs will probably have gone uh, to a large part in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. So what we see is an erosion of the lower middle class. And um, um, of course, we, and we do not know yet, like in the, in the past revolutions, we had, um, uh, we had new 
jobs in the service sector, first in the industrial sector, mm -hmm. when we moved from agriculture to manufacturing and then from manufacturing to service. There were new jobs created over time. Now we do not know yet where those new jobs are coming from. Not everybody can become, let's say, a drone dispatcher or a, a robot polisher. Uh, I mean, uh, we, we, we have no, no clear, of course we will need more engineers, more, more. Uh, so this will create a kind of um, fraction in the society. You have the people, like a, a, a bus driver, who knows, he may lose uh, his job in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And in the, f in the first revolution, in the first uh, industrial revolution, you had this um, uh, level of society which was called proletariat. Today you have this new class of society which is called precariat, because they know they are in a precarious mm -hmm. uh, situation or they are already working in a uberized uh, situation whereas I don't know whether they still have an income tomorrow. Mm. So we don't know. Um, what I know is that probably one of the consequences will be that we have to um, redesign. We need an educational revolution point 4.0. Mm -hmm. um, I think the whole educational system has to be moved much more into the direction of lifelong learning, of a good combination of face-to-face uh, -face and uh, digital um, transmission of, of knowledge and so on. But we haven't sorted through yet. And a last remark, I more an optimistic now. Mm -hmm. We may go through this transition phase. We in Switzerland, we had, uh, Two years ago, we had a, you know, Switzerland is a country of referendums. So we had a referendum mm -hmm. on, should we introduce minimal guaranteed incomes? Mm -hmm. And even in my wife, uh, Hilde, who, um, when we talked about it, she, she said, no way. I mean, we, we, we're living in Geneva, we, we have a Puritanian uh, attitude. So how could someone get money from the government without working? Mm -hmm. um, but I, and I was asked by uh, the, the, um, uh, by the media what I'm thinking about. And I said, it, it may be a good idea. It's just not, we are just not yet uh, ripe for it. It may be in 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, and when you argue, let's say, with someone who has a job at minimal income, and instead of having this job at minimal income, he gets um, a guaranteed income, and he can choose the job. You could make the argument, and let's take a nurse or whatever it is, I don't want to pick, up a, pick out one job, but let's, let's take a nurse as an example who is working, I don't know the, the salaries in, in the States, but I take it in Switzerland, she is working for uh, 4,000 Swiss francs. She will feel underpaid and will not, wear, will not have a necessarily great job satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Now, if she gets a minimum income which is guaranteed and she chooses 
not to stay at home, but to do some work, she will do it with much more enthusiasm. So, um, I feel we may go into a kind of new renaissance where we see out of the fourth industrial revolution a fourth sector. So, we have uh, evolving. We had, of course, we had the agricultural sector, we had the manufacturing sector, we had the service sector, mainly as consequence of revolutions. And now you may find a, the creation of a fourth sector, which is a social service sector. So you don't worry anymore about your income, but you are free to serve society. And mm. that's the, uh, I'm sorry to be long, but that's the reason why um, I'm so much engaged in fostering social entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Because we feel social entrepreneurship has to become a mainstream right. in society, not just being something marginalized, uh, good idealists. No, it has to be a, become a pillar of society to provide, for two reasons, to provide the jobs for those low, uh, no, I wouldn't say, for those who will lose the job in the fourth industrial revolution, but second also, I'm coming from the, um, from, uh, the UN General Assembly, where there was a lot of discussion, of course, on how to implement the social development goals. Um, and I think the social development goals, of course, government action, new technologies, but it needs a mobilization. We have to do it on the ground. We have to do it. Um, uh, everybody of us is challenged. So, I'm an optimist. May, we may go into a new renaissance where people serve society, where people are free also to exercise creative uh, professions, being an artist. Maybe we, hopefully, we have many, many yo yo since if you never will, <laughs> nobody will reach your level of uh, professionalism. Yeah, yeah you, said, you said in the, in the book too that. Governments themselves might move in this direction of service and become public service centers. Yeah. That was an interesting idea. Yes. Um, I think governments will be much more measured on the basis how they really fulfill the individual needs of citizens. Mm -hmm. And we see the first governments moving into this direction. Singapore, for example, mm -hmm. is, a, is a good example um, of, of a government which um, perceives itself, not so much in political terms, but how much it can really optimally fulfill the expectations of citizens in terms of health, in terms of education, right. in terms of social services. In terms of looking at countries that are, might be models or direct, uh, certainly suggest directions about a pre preparing people for jobs, uh, Germany what would, would that stand, would Germany stand out? Or are there other countries that stand out? I I would say Germany has a long tradition in um, um, uh, in uh, embracing the concept of uh, stakeholder. Mm -hmm. Uh, democracy. Uh, when I grew up, um, the key word was social market economy. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, Germany is certainly um, a good example. Switzerland is a good example. Mm -hmm. um, um, but we don't have too many examples mm -hmm. yet, good ones. Not enough. Yeah. Not enough. We're still struggling with this question. Uh, the, uh, you, you read about the importance of governments becoming more agile. And I know you have a particular concern about the regulatory state and how regulations are now written mm. and, and how, how that process might be revised. I think this is one of the b biggest challenges which we have because the technological progress is so fast, the governments cannot catch up anymore. And um, uh, by the way, it has also an impact on competitiveness. I remember. I, I organized a meeting for, I, I can mention it here, for Chancellor Merkel with some of the real, of the CEOs of the highly advanced uh, dit, uh, uh, digital economy uh, companies. And um, I asked her afterwards, what is your impression? And then she says, uh, I see now the difference of uh, Silicon Valley with uh, Europe. Uh, so uh, I asked her, what is it? She said, look, in Silicon Valley, everything which is not forbidden <laughs> is allowed. Mm -hmm. And in Europe, everything which is not explicitly allowed is forbidden. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's such a situation which we have. And when you look at um, the, let's say, difficulty or incapability of governments to follow the technological mm -hmm. progress, you have a situation where society loses the control over the um, uh, 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 technological progress. And you see the here in the discussion on big data, um, last year's conflict between Apple and the government and right. so on. So we coined in, in I coined in the book, the, the notion of agile governance. And what it means is, so today, with that fast technological progress, you cannot set regulations anymore, create regulations anymore in the old fashion, where you have an innovation, you go through a parliamentary uh, government uh, commission um, um, driven process, and after some years you come out with the necessary framework. You have to work uh, together on an ongoing basis to create self-binding protocols and principles and rules. Look at artificial intelligence, look at uh, the ownership of big data, and so on and so on. So what we have done in the World Economic Forum, uh, we created um, a campus on, um, in San Francisco uh, to, to uh, bring, um, to have a platform where governments and business continuously could cooperate also with civil society to make sure that those new technologies are human-centered. Because we have to have an objective and the objective should be they have to serve humankind. So we work on artificial intelligence, we work on precision medicine, on drones, internet of things and so on. And um, um, our dream or wish is uh, to create a whole network um, for such an approach because it has to uh, be based on the ownership of governments around the world 
and um, to have such centers in each city mm. or in those cities mm -hmm. where really um, uh, technological progress is eminent. So um, I could imagine maybe when we meet again in five years or in three years or with the speed of the fourth industrial revolution, maybe in one year, that we have also a center here. Mm -hmm. But your central focus uh, in terms of, I've, I've heard you say, if you want to predict the future of a country, don't look anymore at its GDP growth, look at its rate of innovation. That's right, and um, I also, I was, yeah, it was very much in the news because I coined another uh, expression, I said, um, Today we, we have moved, we are not anymore in the age of capitalism, we are in the age of talentism, which means it's um, capitalism abundant. If you have a good idea, you find so, you have so and so many investors who run after you. Uh, mm -hmm. But what is scarce, if you look what is, where is the scarcity? It's in good ideas, it's mm -hmm. in talents. So, um, uh, Talentism, in some way, is replacing, hmm. even conceptually, hmm. uh, capitalism. All right, well, thank you, Klausi. And uh, he's a classy guy there. And uh, him up there sitting with good old David Gergen, uh, again, um, World Economic Forum, as you saw there, them both kind of like representing, you know, the WEF. And back in 2017, that was. Also, he's a part of the Bilderberg Group and was involved in planning Operation Dark Winter. Has ties into the organizations that were behind Event 201. And, uh, of course, linked up there with Klaus Schwab. And I'm sure we'll make more links from Dagan Gergen, the guy who was sitting there interviewing Klaus and we're hearing about the plans for the future, and that's what they have. They have plans. These people have a plan for you, and uh, you know we're not to putting Klaus up there and saying, look how crazy everything he says is. Some of the stuff he says makes sense, right? Um, but what he's talking about is socialism. He's talking about communism. He's talking about your loss of ownership of things and a more centralized um, service economy which involves uh, things like a, a lower class. He, he used the word lower, and then he said, well, oh, don't worry, I don't mean lower. I mean, you know, people that got laid off because of the automation uh, will have to have a safety net for them, right? So, the, of course, the universal basic income, as we call it in the, the States, he's calling it things like inclusive capitalism and, uh, you know, these airy-fairy terms for basically communism. And uh, it's just, you know, interesting to see how some people have plans and just assume that this is the this is the plan, right? These guys have obviously been carrying out their plans for decades now. And uh, he's a real but here in Switzerland. So he is part of the um, Davos group there. They call it in Switzerland. And he's the World Economic Forum guy, Klaus Schwab. You can learn more about him in Santa Claus is Coming to Town, the episode from Grand Theft World that we did. I'll try to link that up in the show notes. For today, I do have to get going, so I'm going to leave it there for now. In the bio Psy War Today message, in the anthrax, you've been watching live. If you've been watching live, I know not a lot made it to the end of the stream today, but it is March, uh, sorry, April 10th, 2021.
here in the bio sci-war and we will catch you soon and catch up more on the latest information from the front lines in the bio sci-war and continue pulling on these threads that we've been connecting i think today uh, we definitely threaded some holes and some loops that i didn't even know were there and so that's kind of the idea uh, here in exploring the various topics and things that we go into in the bio sci-war we also mentioned in the beginning the within the stones media network course that has been released go check that out in the show notes take a look and uh, there's a quote that I wanted to read into the record here from Professor Frida Harbour, who was mentioned in the beginning by that robot in the slides. And it says, In no future war will the military be able to ignore poison gas. It is a higher form of killing. And that gives way a little bit into what we'll be going into next week, reading from the book, The Higher Form of Killing, by Robert Harris and Jeremy Paxham. All right, Paxman, thank you, and everyone have a wonderful day, and I'll talk to you next time.